0: Welcome to episode 125 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Emerson Green. Emerson is the host of the Counter Apologetics and Walden Pod podcasts, uh, focusing mostly on religion, atheism, consciousness, and panpsychism. His content is also available on his Emerson Green YouTube channel. I'd suggest you subscribe to all of the above. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 124 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've found us recently. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a few friends helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, We you can sign up for email updates, or just search for the word sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning emerson how are you
1: i'm good how are you doing
0: yeah really good really good well thank you for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations i was saying before we started i feel like i already know you because i've listened to your voice or watched your videos so much but it's the (laughs) first time we've had a proper conversation beyond the odd twitter dm chat so it's great to talk to you um and as you know already because i'm honored to have you as a subscriber and a listener um this is a series of conversations about what i think of as the two deepest Philosophical questions are the most important ones: what's real, and what and who matters. Um, I've got an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularise and develop this really simple pluralistic worldview called sentientism, which suggests that we should take a methodologically naturalistic approach to working out what's real, using evidence and reason, such uh, such as far as they'll take us. Um, and when it comes to who matters, the scope of our compassion and our moral consideration, the clue is in the name: we should. compassion or moral consideration for all sentient beings so all beings that have the capacity to have ideally valenced experiences suffering and flourishing in particular but i'm uh, lucky in these conversations to talk to a dazzling array of people some of whom agree with sentientism and many others who don't so it'll be fascinating to understand your own philosophical journey and where you've got to on those crazily big questions Uh, but before we start with those how would you best introduce yourself
1: well i mean i have a youtube channel that's um, called Emerson Green, and um, I started a podcast a long time ago. If you'd rather listen over podcast, I have two podcasts: one called Counter Apologetics and one called Walden Pod. And everything is decentralized like that because it it sort of came about piecemeal. Like I started the religion podcast first, Counter Apologetics, just because I needed an outlet to talk about religion. Um, I was uh, just annoying my um girlfriend at the time my wife now like way too much (laughs) um, I needed to like get all these uh you know thoughts out and to um you know talk about it with people and um yeah it it almost it wasn't even like optional it was something that like had to be done um because
0: I just needed to talk about this stuff it was on my mind all the time um that's and that's fascinating because my my wife is somewhere behind me here finds it really annoying that i'm doing a youtube podcast but i i will make that point to her that <laughs> if i wasn't talking to the world you know my tiny subscriber base about these things she'd have to be listening to it directly so yeah i
1: know everything yeah. that you're saying in these podcasts she would have to hear in great detail exactly so she should i mean that's kind of weird i've heard because my story i've heard from other podcasters like literally where their wife will be like you should start a podcast because <laughs> <laughs> i'm tired of, of hearing about your hobby Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah, I just need like a reduction of like you know not one hundred percent, but just like maybe a fifty percent reduction of hearing about the intricacies of philosophy of religion while yeah, I'm trying yeah. to work. Um, but uh, yeah. and um i I started off talking about religion, and um uh, I can't remember why I started this exactly. I think you just asked, you know about my life and my work. But, you know that's like so central to my identity, I guess, is you know, thinking about religion. Um, you know, religion is just one of the most interesting things you can talk about. It's the intersection of practically everything that I care about, you know, like what we're talking about ethics, you know, what's real, what matters. Um, but also just, you know, psychology, epistemology, um, metaphysics, like everything that I find interesting, you know, biology, like everything that I like to think about is going to come up at some point when you're talking about religion. Um, so it's just kind of the intersection of of a lot of subjects that I, I find really fascinating. So, you know, that's how things started off for me. Um, and then eventually I wanted to talk about some other stuff besides religion. You know, like the the um, pretense of the podcast was very narrow. It was like, okay, we're going to set up like some apologetic argument and then uh, counter it. <laughs> um, and if you want to do something other than that, then I felt like I had to have another podcast Um, So that's Walden Pod, where I talk about like metaphysics of consciousness and just occasionally some other stuff. And after that, I have started uploading those podcast episodes to YouTube. So that's why everything is kind of, you know, decentralized. But yeah, it started off just with an interest and like a need actually to talk about um, religion mostly and then some other issues in
2: philosophy.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you. And and those conversations I find equally fascinating. That's part of the reason I was so keen to. Uh, have a conversation with you here because the ideas of religion run through all of these big questions and of course the philosophy and the metaphysics of mind do too because if sentientism is centered on sentience you know it's sort of interesting to think about what it might actually be so um, yeah we'll, we'll run through all of that so let's move on to this first big question which i in a really crazily broad way say you know what's real or how should we think about what to believe so for many of my guests that's a story about whether they grew up originally in quite a sort of naturalistic maybe scientifically minded context society family or one that was more uh, supernatural more religious more spiritual in some sense and how that side of their thinking has changed over time um, so yeah you can wind the clock back and it would be fascinating to tell your story and how would you summarize where you are now on that question of epistemology but I guess also ontology Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I was raised in kind of a young earth creationist,
1: literalist Christian household, like in answers in Genesis type worldview. Um, I'm now an atheist. I have been for like the better part of a decade. Um, Maybe I'm beginning to lean agnostic, but I don't know. Um, So it's interesting coming from that background because I was, in a sense, kind of sheltered from like science and philosophy. Um, I didn't really know what philosophy was, you know, like I um, I liked philosophical subjects, but I didn't know that that's what it was called. So I went to like an apologetics camp at one point. Um, it's like two weeks long and like, you know, dozens and dozens of hours of lectures um, about, you know, apologetics and all the things that come up. And that was sort of that's like what started this kind of journey, I guess. Like, uh, I mean, I was there already because I was questioning and everything, but it was the first time I had heard the term like epistemology or something. And I'm like, oh, well, there's a whole <laughs> like people talking about how we know stuff is like a whole subfield. Like I had no idea anything like that existed, but I was
0: immediately like, whatever that is, I like that. Um, And before that camp, what, how would you describe the sort of core things that you believed and were they articles of faith or in the way that they were described to you, was there some underpinning rationale that was supposed to lead to the faith or or was it just faith?
1: No, it definitely wasn't just faith. Like Answers in Genesis, if you're familiar with them, like they do try to give, you know, scientific and philosophical arguments for their young earth creationist view. Um, And the thing is, they're not as easily debunked as people would think. It's why a lot of people get involved with debates in them and then it ends up being like kind of a draw somehow, even though young earth creationism is like one of the like wrongest things (laughs) that you could like propose about the natural world still like if you're not familiar with their arguments like you're gonna um, find yourself kind of bamboozled I guess by some of this stuff like you have to be familiar with what they actually say and sometimes you have to learn some uh, some like pretty deep philosophy to engage with someone like Jason Lyle who you know is like an informed physicist with a PhD from a real university like you know, they get these people who are young earth creationists who do ultimately believe because of the Bible, you know, like the reason they're even looking into this is because it's scriptural. They're like, they, they act the way I feel like more Christians kind of should act where it's like, Hey, we've got a book from God, (laughs) which seems like it might be a better epistemic authority than, um, you know, what some scientist says, and they're going to say something else 20 years from now and be equally certain that that's, you know, the real truth this time. Um, you know, like a book from God seems like a pretty solid (laughs) epistemic source, you know, whether it was like inspired or written or whatever, the point is it's divinely, um, it has divine origins, you know? So that's why they're even looking into the question of how old is the earth. Right. But after that, they are trying to make like scientific arguments. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, the earth is like the earth and universe and humanity is, is really, really, really not 6,000 years old, you know, and it's, it it seems kind of trivial to prove that, but I I just mean, like, in a debate setting, it's, like, harder to, uh, it's harder to argue against than you, than you might think, Um, but, yeah, I mean, the core of it was a kind of, like, biblical worldview, like, the basis of it was ultimately scriptural, but there was still a place for, like, you know, scientific argumentation and stuff, but I just just wasn't exposed to science more generally, Um, and it is kind of, like, uh, I don't want to say paradoxical exactly, but, you know, like, my mom is a, professor at a Christian university. Like she was just made a full professor, like in the last couple of weeks. And, um, so it's not like, uh, you know, she has a master's in psychology. She had her own practice for a long time. Like, um, it's not, it's not like, my, I'm not trying to say my parents are like, or my family, like they're stupid or something. Like they're definitely not, but they just, um, it's just weird because they're, it's, it's wrong to say they're anti-science or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's not exactly accurate, even though on the surface level, that's a perfectly fine description. Like, yeah, yeah, they're anti-science. But when you scratch the surface, it's not like they reject the authority of science, you know, like they're very um, concerned with, you know, as is every answers in Genesis, uh, like proponent, like they're very concerned with making scientific arguments for their view. They're like, they they couldn't live with the cognitive dissonance of having a view that they actually thought was in conflict with like scientific findings. So yeah, it's a little weird, but um, yeah, it was like ultimately biblical, but there was a place for, you know, scientific argumentation, but I was still kind of sheltered from um, anything to do with, with, you know, real science for a pretty long time. And um, in a way, I'm kind of grateful for that because I learned about evolution later. And then I was kind of blown away by it, became obsessed with it for a few years because I was like, um, it was all new to me, you know, so it was a lot more exciting. Like I hadn't, I like, wasn't taking it for granted.
0: So how did, so how did that journey happen? Was was the apologetics camp, sounds like maybe that was where the cracks first started to appear because you, it was the first time you heard it was possible for someone to disagree with the view and learn about ideas like epistemology and so on. So w- was that where the cracks started to appear or what was your journey like through moving away from the AIG world? I
1: mean, the, the cracks were there. That's why I was sent to the camp. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so the cracks were. So it's partly uh, to
0: counter, yeah, it's partly to be, you know, apologetics, to the ways you were already starting to think.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um so how did that play out? Well, um the cracks formed naturally. I mean, I was just thinking about I was thinking about faith and prayer and um you know, the Bible. I was just kind of blown away with how bad the Bible was. Like just like morally was not that impressive or wise it seemed to me and as a book it was just terrible. It was just like it was it really was like a it caused some like dissonance for me to think that this book was had anything to do with like the mind of God I guess because it was so bad like it was just like no one reads the thing like like even Christians don't really read it it's not that good of a book it, you know like in in literary terms in moral terms it's just it's just not that good you have to be like a pretty highly educated person to see merits in the Bible I think like um you know so like David Bentley Hart who I really admire. Um, you know, he would just be, he would just be totally scoffing at what I'm saying right now, that the Bible is so terrible. But it's like, you have to be as educated in like biblical scholarship as David Bentley Hart, I think, (laughs) to like see the beauty in like the biblical story. Because if you're just reading it, it's like, this is just not that good. And so that kind of bothered me. Um, You know, the failure of prayer kind of bothered me. Um, It didn't really seem to do anything. I I thought that, um, you know, like my, immediate surrounding like people were really concerned with constantly talking to God you know like it wasn't just like a rare thing for God to um you know speak to you like in a dream or something like it wasn't like this rare once in a lifetime or like once in a decade thing it was like every moment of every day God is speaking to you you know and that just struck me as totally crazy um it seemed like it was pretty obvious that it's just your own voice and your own intuitions and you're just kind of saying it's like someone else's Interestingly, there's this show called "The Ban- Under the Banner of Heaven. It's about Mormons. I wasn't raised Mormon, but it kind of shows, you know, how that can go very, very wrong. Like one of the main characters is someone who thinks that God is like speaking to him all the time. And it does have all these, it might slip by you if you weren't looking for it, but it really struck me because um, that's the kind of thing that I was like, uh, I just don't know. I don't know how to put it, but that it's it, that. It, this, the, the terrible situations that, that came up in that, uh, TV show, which is based on a book by John Krakauer. Um, it could, <laughs> believing that God is constantly speaking to you can obviously lead to that kind of thing. You know, it won't in many cases, but anyway, there were just little things that bothered me, you know, like speaking to God, you know, the kind of, uh, laying on of hands and like, uh, healing people, you know, that didn't seem to uh, work very well. <laughs> you know, God only ever seemed to do things that were that might have happened anyway or just not that impressive kind of unverifiable nothing that was like undeniable you know it was all stuff that easily could have been that we could could have been mistaken about and um uh i don't know i'm just trying to grab onto like a handful of different things that might have been you know kind of under the surface of my
0: teenage mind at the time but yeah and in the conversations i've had i mean some, some of my guests are um religious and still are um but for the ones that did move away from a religion it seems that Quite often there's a combination of, you know, the facts and the evidence stuff, right? In- incoherences or inconsistencies, or it just doesn't seem to tie up internally uh, or with respect to the outside world. So there's the facts and the evidence stuff. But often, as you hinted at there's also some moral stuff. You look at this book and go, this deity is described here. It doesn't seem like a great moral exemplar based on what I think of as ethical. Um, you hinted at a third potential one, which is literary maybe you know the writing <laughs> yeah. accurate, right? but it seems like it was a mix it seems like it was a mix of those things yeah
1: oh yeah but like imagine you were uh like you know giving a book to humanity and it's like it's your revelation you know you're god and it's your revelation to humanity would you start it off with like and such and such was born to such and such he was born to such and such he was born to such like you would want to you'd want it to open with a bang i would think yeah it's know? not a like, killer first line <laughs> is it really
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. The,
1: the New testament yeah it's just um yeah, but uh the the thing that, that really that got, got me though the don't. thing that was a uh, one line of continuity from when I started to where I am now is sort of the internal logic of Christianity. Like just the story I think doesn't make any sense. It it kind of decoheres when you try to fit together all these different doctrines that came about piecemeal over time for different reasons in different historical and theological contexts and then you try to fit them all together under under one roof and it just doesn't work. You know, like Christian... the the mainstream Christian narrative, I think, is just basically incoherent. Like, literally, it is logically contradictory. All these things can't be true. You have to give up some of them or just, like, radically reinterpret some of them. And these are core things, like, you know, God's goodness and love and justice and mercy. And the idea that if you you know, fail to be a Christian, if you fail to accept the right propositions about how the world works, you're going to uh, burn for all of time. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're a, a really liberal Christian.
0: To, even if you never got to hear of them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if you're a really liberal Christian, then those people, you know, all the non-believers will just be annihilated permanently upon death. You know, so <laughs> it's just like, it's impossible to fit these things together once you try to actually start um, taking into account, you know, facts about like religious diversity and the kind of involuntariness of some of our religious beliefs, you know, the fact that they're due to different, uh, you know, contingent historical factors, you know, like if if some of these Christians who are, who are very quick to mock the kind of argument from like religious diversity, you know, if they were born in India, they would probably be Hindus, and then they would be uh, sentenced to eternal conscious torment, according to their view. Um, and they have some extremely weak apologetics for this kind of thing it's just totally unconvincing it's it's they're already committed to this view and they're just trying to make it work you know like there's no way that this would be plausible to anyone who's hearing it for the first time and if you do cast like the slightest skeptical gaze on it it just falls apart immediately and um you know anyone can see this except for the people who are just totally um totally dogmatized And just unable to see. I mean, the idea of eternal conscious torment. When you try to square that with like a god who's just, for instance, um, it's it's literally impossible to do. (laughs) Like it
0: it seems pretty obvious, actually. Agree. Feels incoherent. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So when you went on the apologetics camp, did that paper over some of the cracks, or was that when it opened up? Was it was there a light bulb moment, or was it just a gradual realization and? Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I thought that I was going to go to that camp and then it's like, this will be a part of my testimony someday. I'll be like, yeah, I was an atheist. And then, um, some wise Christian answered all my objections. And then the exact opposite happened. Like I heard the defenses and I was like, this is the defense. And, um, it kind of, uh, I did have sort of like a lightning bolt moment of like, oh, I I don't believe in God. (laughs) Like it, it sort of went the opposite of how I expected it to go. And, um, yeah, I was like very angry for a while because it felt like I'd been lied to, you know, and kind of misled. Um, and, uh, yeah, but it, I mean, I went there because there were these cracks forming and it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back where I was like, yeah, this is not true. Like, um, yeah, it was very psychologically destabilizing. It was like, you know, kind of central to, uh, my life, you know, um, I, I didn't want to, uh, well, I mean, it's, an, I don't know, I, I did kind of want to deconvert because I thought it wasn't true, you know, like, I, like the dissonance was like too much and I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it, I, on like a more micro level, I really did not want to deconvert, you know, like it was really like, um, like, it, it was upsetting, you know, it was like a really, it was like a year long, really painful process. Um And now if I could choose to believe I would, like if I could choose to be a Christian, I would just for the sake of my mom, basically, because I know she like prays every week that I would like uh, reconvert to Christianity. I know it's like a big cause of distress for not only like uh, my parents, but for other people, you know, who are like family friends and that sort of thing. So it's like to say that I'm indifferent to it, you know, I I just can't, I, I can't go that way because it's like oh yeah I'm, I'm totally indifferent to it but it would make some of the people who I love the most in the world very very happy if I um, you know converted so it's like yeah I would like to convert I would like to believe but um, the Christian story doesn't make much sense to me and even with the versions of Christianity that aren't incoherent because there are some versions that are not incoherent um, they're very fringe and you'd be called a heretic if you adopted them but um, anyway the reason I I'm Uh, more agnostic about those forms of Christianity is ultimately because of the kind degree and distribution of evil in the world, where, you know, I think Luke Roloff said this on, on this podcast, actually, where he said, you know, if you're looking out at the world, (laughs) your first thought is not, oh yeah, this was created by a perfect being, you know, a a perfect being (laughs) of love and uh, goodness. And like, there's of course a moral rationale behind all the evil that I see in the world. Like that is not the natural reaction that you would have to this sort of thing. Um, it's a very morally mixed world like the the world has a very morally mixed character and that's just not what you would expect if the foundation of reality was a perfect being so that has more to do with my non-belief now like yeah the internal inconsistencies of christianity and theism generally and um yeah basically the problem of
0: evil yeah makes sense it feels absolutely central and as you hinted at there i think when you extend the problem of evil out to think about you know wild animal suffering for example it just becomes even more egregious in scale and it becomes much harder to blame human free will for wild animal suffering too so yeah i'd I'd echo that but it's interesting because my, my own journey away from a religious worldview was was much easier partly because it was much more of a background sort of thing it wasn't central to who we were and who our society was even then it still took me quite a few years to move away from but there was no real trauma whereas it i mean it feels like for you it was you know psychologically difficult and and socially difficult in terms of family and society as well some powerful social norms that shape and push you in particular directions and it takes some real sort of intellectual courage to um you know follow where your head wants to go and i I can only imagine there are countless millions of people who maybe think the way you and I do but because of those pressures just sort of go along with it right and i think the prevalence of atheism or at least agnosticism within religious communities is extremely high and and often not recognized but
1: yeah yeah including with like pastors you know like there's there's some book called like caught in the pulpit i think and there are people who Sort of lost their faith, but who are pastors? It's like they can't. They feel like they just can't do it. You know, they can't like they're not free to um just walk away from it if they were just a, like a normal person or something. And yeah, there are other people not quite in that position, but they have families. You know, they have um you know spouses and and kids, and it just it would be a huge problem if they were to come out of the closet like that. So they just kind of go along with it, or they're just very vague about what they think, or they just lie. You know, and I can understand. Why they might do that, but, you know, I was um fortunate to be in a position where, you know, I was just like a teenager, so I was free to say whatever I wanted. And um I was old enough that, and it's not like I would have been kicked out of the house or anything. I know that's a fear for some younger people as well. Um, I've heard that there's a pretty high population of gay, homeless teenagers around Salt Lake City because they get kicked out of their house by their like Mormon families. yeah um, so I was never in danger of of like, that kind of like radical disowning or something like that. But, um, I, uh, I, you, you said intellectual courage. Yeah. Or maybe just like stubbornness and like <laughs> yeah, uh, hard headedness <laughs> and just not knowing when to shut your mouth. Um, that could also be part of it. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it's, thank you. Fa- thanks for sharing that story. Um, and to quite often in these conversations, as you can imagine, we're talking about naturalism or supernaturalism, but we quite often focus on religion because it's such a central and obvious example, but of course, there are many other topics that are relevant to naturalism and supernaturalism as well. And, and through these conversations, you know, as a total amateur here, and you can put me right on a lot of the philosophy, I, I quite like the idea of distinguishing between a couple of different forms of naturalism. So one I guess is the classic ontological naturalism, where you say, and you've made some great videos on this yourself, um, where naturalism is just the view that Reality is exhausted by the natural world, there's no supernatural stuff, there's no supernatural causality, it's natural. And that can lead you in all sorts of different ways of thinking about what the natural world is, but it's a s- statement about the nature of reality. And then there's a, if you like, a uh maybe what might be more open naturalism, which is a methodological naturalism, which says, look, we're gonna instead of using fideism or revelation or some other source of knowledge, we're gonna use evidence and reason, acknowledging their limitations to try and form our credences and beliefs. Um, So you might imagine that a methodological naturalism could still leave you with some openness about the possibility of supernatural stuff existing, but so they're sort of distinct. And for me personally, my methodological naturalism leads me to ontological naturalism, but do you think it's useful to separate those two ideas out? And, um, and a part of the reason I'm asking is because it strikes me that there's For my mind, this methodological naturalism is supposed to try and start from a reasonably neutral point of view and use evidence and reason to form beliefs and credences, whereas um, there are others who will use a completely fideistic approach which says it's just an article of faith. I don't need evidence and reason to support it. It's faith. That's it. And I'm actually quite proud of the fact it's pure faith. But then there's a third approach which you talked about the answers and genesis people doing, which to my mind is almost like a reverse naturalism of the fake naturalism where you start with a conclusion and then you do use evidence and reason in a selective manner to try and reinforce the thing you've already decided you want to believe. So I should stop rabbiting on, but I find that sort of mix of different methodologies and ontologies quite interesting. I don't know what your thoughts are. about. Yeah,
1: no, it is interesting. I mean, the answers in Genesis approach could also just be called natural theology where it's like they, they do try to use evidence and reason to try to prove their, you know, um, religious claims about the world. And, I think natural theology is like, you know, unsuccessful, obviously, because I'm an atheist. But like, um, yeah, you can use just rational arguments. You can try to start from neutral principles. Like you don't have to start like the way the answers in Genesis people do, where it's like, okay, our starting point, our foundation is the Bible. And then we're going to try to do something like natural theology. Like you can do natural theology in a way where you are just starting from very neutral, unobjectionable principles and observations and then try to work to God from there. Um, it's hard to do, but yeah, I mean, that's the whole tradition of of natural theology but um i I don't really make the distinction between methodological naturalism and and other kinds of naturalism. I don't know why I don't have like a an argument against it. I just never find myself using that phrase. I just um, I don't know, I think everyone you know using the kind of like that approach, you know, this kind of um Uh, the approach that you're outlining, you know, that you're calling, like, a naturalist approach, like, I think that's open to anyone, because it's more of, like, an epistemic thesis about how we should figure out what's true, you know, and I think religious people often have, like, additional things, but I don't think anyone really denies that, like, evidence and reason is important, or that we should generally use that to, you know, I I actually don't know any, like, Fideists who who say, like, yeah, I just believe this on faith, and, like, I believe because it's absurd to believe, like, you know, it's uh, yeah. yeah.
0: And, and I had a conversation with Mike Humer, who's basically said the same thing, which is, sort of, what's the point? You know, isn't everybody a uh, methodological naturalist in a way? And I think that's probably true when it maybe when it comes to philosophers or academics. But I think fideism is reasonably common in the wider world. So I've, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with religious people who will say, you know, it's not relevant whether or not there's evidence to support my view. You know, it, huh. it, it is a pure article of faith. But um, yeah, I don't, know what, I don't know, what the, you know what the stats might be on how prevalent that stance is, but it certainly seems to come across in many of the sort of anecdotal conversations I have where, you know, you don't feel a rationale for, don't feel a need for a rationale or an evidence-based support a conclusion.
1: That's interesting, because I
0: just, I, I honestly
1: don't know if I've ever met a person who said that. I mean, like, I don't know if it's like a cultural divide or something, but yeah. like, um, like I remember I I brought on Philip Goff to talk about religious fictionalism, because he's, he's a Christian, but he, he doesn't believe in, like the traditional God or anything like it. Um, and I just thought that was so weird. I mean, I thought it was, you know, legitimate. Like I, there are secular Jews and everything. So I thought, yeah. oh, there could be secular Christians. So um, so I was like kind of defending his view. And then a couple people, a couple listeners from um, like Western Europe and from Japan actually reached out and they were just like, yeah, this is totally normal. Like where I'm from, like the, I, almost everyone I know who's a Christian is like this type of Christian. I was like, really? <laughs> like, I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone who... Uh, says this like i thought it was like a totally unique thing but um i think it might just be different in the u.s or something i i don't know but yeah everyone i know has reasons why they're a christian including myself when i was a christian like they were very bad reasons like poorly thought out reasons but i did have you know something resembling a design argument um something resembling a cosmological argument but more so design yeah
0: um design has always been more interesting to me and i think maybe that becomes more meaningful is that rather than talking about what well, there's fideism over here or there's natural methodological naturalism over here it becomes more a question about what's the quality of your naturalism you know as we we're talking about do you start the, the conclusions and then shape the evidence and the reasoning to support that or do you do it the other way around so it's more about the quality of naturalism but i guess one of the reasons i quite like talking about the a commitment to methodological naturalism is at least it locks us into hopefully can be a productive debate because it's baked into naturalism that you have to be open to all of the evidence, not just the evidence you like. And you have to apply some form of rationale. It doesn't guarantee we'll agree and you can still make mistakes, of course, but at least you can, you're in some form of productive conversation rather than one that's completely dogmatic, at least in theory. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I I mean, I don't, I don't know if I totally agree with Bart Ehrman, who is saying, like, it sounds like he was advocating some kind of methodological naturalism. Like, oh, I can't invoke miraculous explanations as a historian. And it's like, well, look, I don't know anything about what historians do, but um, it does seem like you shouldn't just start off assuming that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Like, you should kind of be open to that in principle, even if you're a naturalist like you should be open in principle to the idea that that happened and then examine the evidence. And if the evidence is lacking, which it is, then you can you know, not accept that, but like, it would be irrational. I think just to like reject in principle, like, no, I'm assuming ahead of time that this can't possibly be right.
0: Like that would be irrational. I think. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's, there's a couple of things here. One is one that one thing that helps you've hinted at there is instead of it being, you know, belief or non-belief or, you know, I disregard that completely or accept it completely. It's more one of credences and sort of Bayesian approach where you're open-minded and you accord your degree of credence with the weight of the evidence, which means you should at least be theoretically open-minded about totally crazy things. But I think the other thing is part of the reason why I think maybe methodological and ontological naturalism often collapse together is because in a sense, if you do find evidence of some supernatural phenomenon almost by definition, it's then become natural because you've got some evidence for it. So, so I, I that's another sort of strange, you know, if we, if, if we did come across some evidence of a deity intervening in the world in some way we could detect, then I guess that deity has become a, in some sense, a natural phenomenon and it's no longer really supernatural. So I don't know if it becomes a yeah. bit circular, but
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it comes down to your idea of how concepts have their meaning, I guess. So, like, I I don't think there's really a great analysis of supernatural or natural, where it's, like, here are the necessary and sufficient conditions of what natural means and what supernatural means. I think it just comes down to how people use the term. So, like, when people talk about God, that's kind of what, that's, like, the quintessential example of something supernatural. Like, that's the paradigm case of something supernatural. So, even if God existed and he intervened from time to time, like, raising Jesus from the dead or something, then... I wouldn't call him natural just because that's not how people use the term, you know, for the same reason I wouldn't call a rock supernatural, you know, I wouldn't call, um, I wouldn't call God natural but yeah it it does just kind of fall like if you don't share that kind of um, use theory view that that I have, um, about how, how words get their meaning which basically just comes from usage like in certain like linguistic communities, then yeah I could see how that would, how that might follow. but I do think that uh, a more useful division that I, uh, that I tend to invoke for for divvying up kinds of naturalism, um, I, like I do like to say that oh naturalism is just the view that nature exhausts concrete reality or something like that. Um, there's only the natural world. So the natural world is kind of common ground, you know, between us and theists and and pretty much everyone else. So sometimes when people say they don't know what naturalism means or naturalism doesn't make any predictions, it just seems like obviously wrong to be because everyone knows what the natural world is, even if they can't provide a definition of it. I mean, that's how most terms actually are. Everyone knows what they mean. Everyone knows how to use them. But if you ask for like a perfect definition of them, then you can't, it's really, really hard to do um, because that's not how words came about. We didn't like write down in a dictionary and then, and then start using them. We
0: started using them and tried to write them down in a dictionary. Yeah, if if you will only use concepts that are perfectly defined, then good luck. <laughs>
2: yeah. They're,
0: they're, but as far as I'm aware, there pretty much aren't any. You know, yeah, in, maybe some like, math, like... Even in maths, you might struggle. But. <laughs> yeah, if they, like maybe you
1: could use like triangle or something. Like you could yeah, have a couple yeah. of, like geometric concepts and yeah. a handful of other things. But yeah, it's it would be a very, very short list. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, when you look at how kids acquire language, it's not like you teach kids like, okay, we're going to go through the dictionary now and we're going to run through some new words that you're going to like, that's not how they acquire language. They just acquire language by watching other people do it. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like my view of how words get their meaning is more in line with how people actually acquire language and how language actually developed. Some people, they seem to work from like, they just seem to grab the wrong end of the stick. I feel like they they, they seem to think you can't use a term unless you have like a perfect conceptual analysis, You know, necessary and sufficient conditions, no counterexamples and then you're allowed to use it then it's meaningful and it's like i don't think that's right at all <laughs> um yeah so natural and supernatural i think that it's it's kind of like that um but i i do think that naturalists typically especially in philosophy there are people who believe that um science pretty much informs us as to what's real and like the elements of physical science like that's basically it um so that's like a very strict form of naturalism but that's not a bad like starting point it's like okay well what's real is the stuff that science tells us about and like that exhausts concrete reality. That's what naturalism means. And then there's a more like moderate form of naturalism. Like, okay, maybe there are in addition to those concrete things that science tells us about, there are all these abstract objects, um, you know, like propositions or like uh, non-natural like moral truths or something. And then um, there are liberal naturalists who add more things to their ontology, like some concrete stuff that most naturalists would not, Uh, get on board with, but you're still not going for anything that people typically call supernatural, like gods or angels or heaven or, or, you know, prayer or something like that. It's like, you're still recognizably a naturalist in part because, you know, you're still an atheist or an agnostic. Um, In philosophy of religion, that's like a big part of what naturalism means. It's just that you're an atheist or an agnostic. Um, Whereas outside of philosophy of religion, it seems to be more concerned with like, you believe in. Uh, the things that science tells us about, and not really much else, at least when it comes to the concrete world. Um, but yeah, so Felipe Leon uses this organization where you've got like naturalists, you've got moderate naturalists, um, and then you've got liberal naturalists. So the conservative naturalists are the ones who are just like it's just the stuff that science tells us about that exhausts all of reality. The moderate naturalists they believe in in that as well as well, but they think that there are some abstracta in addition to that, and then the liberal naturalists they add even more stuff to their ontology. And I'm more in that category, you know, like I, sometimes I self-deprecatingly call myself a spooky naturalist because I believe in all these things that most naturalists think are just kind of like spooky or like paranormal even. And, um, I'm just, uh, so I started off as kind of like, you know, a joke, but now I actually kind of like the term, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of how I view, uh, view naturalism. You know, it does help to start talking about science first, I guess, and like, okay, here's what we know from science. Is that all there is? Like, is John Carroll right that like the core theory exhausts all of, you know, our everyday world and there's nothing over and above, you know, this equation that we can put on a whiteboard? And then you can kind of move farther and farther away from that into like liberal naturalism.
0: Thank you. That's been fascinating. Well, you've enriched my understanding of the different varieties of naturalism, but you've you've also reassured me that it's okay to keep using naturalism as one of the two tenets of sentientism even though it's fuzzy and pluralistic but i like that that's one of the reasons i like it so (laughs) cool um so and we'll come maybe we'll come back to some of the spooky stuff a bit later on as well um but let's move on to this second equally big question of what matters um so for many people who've moved to a naturalistic way of understanding the world it's an often it's often a challenge to us is okay well if you don't have a supervening deity or a religious book or you know some other set of rules and you're not going to get punished or rewarded at some point for your behavior you know presumably you have no ethical grounding whatsoever and you're a total nihilist so what what's what's been your journey about i guess the the grounding of ethics if you do th- think there is one and how did that shift as you move from a, a young earth creationist ethic which i presume was where you started and what's the basis of your how do you think about ethics now
1: yeah i mean i did kind of fall for a lot of the christian propaganda about morals being sort of that belongs to religion and if you leave religion then you have no morals like those are the two options either you know morality is real and objective or you're an atheist and you're some kind of nihilist so i did kind of fall for that you know and was that I,
0: part of the psychological difficulties you had in moving yeah. away from it? yeah
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was because I had to, um, it's like, I I had to be so disillusioned and so like angry almost that I didn't care about the nihilism where I was just like, okay, look, this is true. And it does have these awful implications, but I think it happens to be true. So what am I supposed to do about this? Like, yeah, nihilism. Okay, fine. Um, But that was pretty short-lived because I think that moral nihilism is like one of the least plausible positions that you could name. Like when you just start When you just start listing like the implications of nihilism, it's like it has nothing to do with whether or not God exists. It's just the claims of nihilism are like as obviously false as anything you could name, like just the idea that like the Holocaust wasn't bad, like in every sense, it just wasn't bad. And they say, oh, but I don't think it was good either. Okay, but you also think it wasn't bad. <laughs> and it yeah. seems like a, a it seems like it was bad to me at least. Like so when you're watching like Schindler's list, like is it impossible for you to tell who the good guys were and who the bad guys were? Like that's just totally incoherent. There's no fact you. of the matter, yeah. <laughs> There's no fact of the matter. Um, yeah, like just the idea that you know slavery wasn't bad, the Holocaust wasn't bad, suffering um is not bad, pain or I mean like pleasure is not good, you know, like killing uh you know like kidnapping someone's infant and throwing it off of a building is just as good as caring for an infant and nurturing it which is to say neither of them are good neither of them are bad neither of them are good they're completely morally equivalent actions that's so like it's hard it's actually hard to think of something that's less plausible than what i just said and again it has nothing to do with whether or not god exists it's just it's it's (laughs) self-evident that it's wrong i don't understand how there are people who are actually like error theorists or or nihilist or anything. Um, So I did buy into that for like a short time, because I just thought that people like William Lane Craig were right, that like, look, if God doesn't exist, then you have no basis for saying that anything is wrong. And I was like, you know, so I I bit the bullet for a short time. And then I was like, why why would I, you know, so I I moved away from that pretty quickly. Um, It didn't take long to shake that off. Um, It's sad to see that some people are still kind of under that illusion, including atheists, who seem to think that they have to be moral anti-realists as like a matter of consistency. Um, another wrinkle to this is that people like Craig are divine command theorists, which is a form of moral subjectivism, which is some one of their big boogeymen, like, oh no, moral subjectivism, you know, cultural relativism. And then they buy into this idea where morals constitutively depend on this subject, you know, so it's, it's not a normal form of subjectivism, but they think that morals are grounded in the, you know, attitudes, opinions, feelings, whatever of this subject,
0: God. You
1: know, that's what morals are. And if you get rid of God, then there are no morals.
0: Yeah, which has which has worrying implications if that God designed and built a hell where billions of innocents will burn in hell. Uh Yeah, that gives you worrying implications about what benevolence and the good even mean if when you are actually supposed to follow that example. But yeah, a, I mean, those things are good. <laughs>
1: <yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, on divine command theory, that's perfectly good. There's nothing wrong with that at all. With, uh, you know, with this kind of like, you know, somewhat caricatured view, but it does happen to be held by millions and millions of, like, evangelical Christians, and also by non-Christians as well, that, like, you are literally going to burn, you know, in the afterlife if you fail to accept the right propositions or something, Um, you know, so there's nothing morally wrong with that on their, like, divine command theoretic view, which is um, kind of like a reductio, maybe, that, um, of that view, but fortunately, there are other arguments, but yeah, it's, it's just kind of ironic to me that one of their boogeymen is, you know, moral subjectivism. And it's like, they are moral subjectivists. They just, they're not the, you know, typical kind where it's like, you're a moral subject, I'm a moral subject, and like, it's just relative between us or something. But um, yeah, they, they think there's only one moral subject that really matters, you know, that sets the standard. But it's still, ultimately, they're grounding morals in this. Um, they're, they're saying that morals constitutively depend on this subject, you know, that's what makes it a form of subjectivism. Um, whereas I'm not a moral subjectivist, I believe that obje- morality is objective. So unlike divine command theorists, I believe in I believe that morality is objective. So it, it it's sort of grounded in these um, you know, non-natural moral truths um that we don't observe, but they sort of have a similar status as like logical truths or um like mathematical truths. So I'm what's called an ethical non-naturalist. I think that. You know, morality is real and objective. There are right and wrong answers to moral questions. Um, You know, the Holocaust was bad. It doesn't matter how anyone feels about it. Like, it just was bad. You know, it doesn't matter if the Nazis had won. It was still bad. You know, suffering is not good. You know, that's a fact. And it it doesn't matter how anyone reacts to it, including God. You know, suffering just is bad. And not not even all theists are divine command theorists. Like, a lot of theists would agree with me, actually. They would be ethical, not naturalists. And they think that these moral truths obtain in all possible worlds, and God is just, um, you know, he's not really uh, uh, the source of them, I guess, in the same way that he's not really the source of um, abstract objects like, you know, logical truths or mathematical truths. Um, Obviously, theists fall on both sides of every question that you could possibly raise, but I'm just saying plenty of theists do believe that, you know, they, they reject divine command theory, and they think that moral truths are kind of independent of God, like morality would be objectively, um, like morality would be real and objective, regardless of whether or not God existed. And that's, you know, also my opinion. So they don't have any issue with like Euthyphro's dilemma, where you say, you know, does God have moral reasons for what he's doing? Or does he not have moral reasons for what he's commanding, you know, so um, either he has moral reasons for what he's commanding for his divine commands, And there's some kind of moral truth independent of God that's informing his commands. So that's the option that they would happily take, you know, the non-divine command theorists. are like, yeah, God God is commanding it because it's good, you know. And then the divine command theorists would be more likely to say, well, it's only good because God commands it. And um, if God didn't exist, there wouldn't be any right and wrong, Um, you know. So, you know, but then that just makes everything morally arbitrary because God doesn't have moral reasons for his commands. So he's just issuing these morally arbitrary commands, and obviously we shouldn't follow morally arbitrary commands. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I do believe in objective morals is the long and short of it.
0: Yeah, thank you. And and I, uh, again, I'm a total amateur in this space, but I, I find the the concepts of this moral realism versus anti-realism quite interesting. And And I guess where I am is that I'm not a moral realist in the sense that I don't think morality and ethics existed before sentient beings existed. I don't think there's any sort of primordial, ordeal, sort of platonic truth floating out there, but contingent on the existence of sentient beings that experience suffering by definition as negative and flourishing as by definition positive, then that's as real as you need. Um, so whether I'm not sure whether that makes me a realist or an anti-realist of some variety or how, how that fits in, but.
1: Well, it's not clear based on what you just said. You kind of sound like you might be a moral naturalist, which is a realist position. Right. Um, so like uh, you might think that, you know, there are right and wrong answers to moral questions, you know, like the flourishing of sentient creatures is good. And, you know, the languishing of sentient creatures is bad. Yeah. Like, that's just a fact. Like, so I don't know if if that's what you would say, but if you think it's ultimately grounded in um, these sort of natural facts, I guess, you know, um, yeah. I know that you think consciousness is like, ultimately just a matter of information processing, which can be described like physically. And yeah, I mean, it. I guess one question would be whether or not you think that these moral truths are totally reducible to descriptive truths. So like these evaluative statements about, you know, pleasure is good, or pain is bad or something like that. Um, do you think that that's reducible to purely descriptive claims? Like are these evaluative claims like reducible to descriptive claims about how the world is you know things that um, physical science can tell us about so I think that would you know definitely clear it up if they, that would make you a moral naturalist I
0: think yeah I think that's that's probably where I am because I think and, and again sentient disagree on this as as well as most other topics but the but personally yeah I think you can reduce it down to the descriptive facts about what it means to be a sentient being and the fact that that entity experiences things with a certain valence links directly to you know the, the moral um thinking we might do about that so experiences of good and bad ultimately link very closely to what morally good and bad outcomes are but yeah so that's that's helpful thank you
1: no no yeah and i i'm so i'm not a moral naturalist i'm a moral non-naturalist so Mm. i think we would agree on on most things and i'm not sure you're a moral naturalist by the way but it just sounds like you might be but um, i need to read some more (laughs) um but i think that uh these evaluative claims are not totally reducible to descriptive claims, like you. So, if, you, if you're familiar with like the is-ought gap, you know that's a good like first approximation of, of what I'm getting at here. Like, I just don't think you can really get from descriptive claims to evaluative claims, like from is to ought. So, um, that's not like the total reason why I'm a non-naturalist, but you know, that's a good like first approximation of why is like I, I don't think that these evaluative claims are like totally reducible to um, descriptive claims but I still think that there are right and wrong answers. And, you know, I think that we, it sounds like you're a, a you know, like an empiricist, like a, a hardcore empiricist, even when you were saying um, when you're kind of describing like what non naturalism would sort of be like, where you're like, Oh, there are these, you know, moral truths floating out there, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. So like, even that it's like, you're thinking like spatio-temporally like, Oh, where would they be? Yeah, and like, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. absurd to you that like, so, I mean, that's like a very empiricist frame of mind, you know, it's like, well, I can't observe them, you know, where are they? And it, for me, it's like, well, I don't think they are any, I don't think they're spatio-temporally located. I don't think that we know about them on the basis of observation. Like, I think we know about these moral truths f- through a uh, rational intuition, which is also something that empiricists will not love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we do kind of like intuit these, um, these moral truths. Like we know about moral truths on the basis of intuition. Like there are some certain foundational moral truths that are just obvious. They're just self-evident. And, um, we can kind of work from those to, to more complex places. And then it gets very murky and then there's all this really complicated moral disagreement where it's, it's not obvious at all what the right answer is, but there are certain things, foundational things that are obvious, like suffering is bad. (laughs) Like I'm pretty confident of that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that we just rationally intuit the fact that suffering is bad. We don't like really observe that it's bad. We just can see that it's bad. You know, like, not through empirical observation, like just intellectually, intuitively, it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's as obvious as
0: like two plus two equals four. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of in the definition of the word itself, again, coming back to the idea of fuzzy concepts before it's sort of, yeah, difficult to describe how else it could, it could work. And you can of course have all sorts of conversations about, you know, justified suffering and whether suffering is a necessary part of a broader, flourishing life and so on but intrinsically in itself. It strikes me as definitionally true that suffering itself is a negative valenced experience, but. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. No, I would recommend.
1: Um, I've I've been reading this book called Ethical Intuitionism by Michael Humer, and yeah. um, I would highly recommend it for anyone who is um interested in the conversation we're having right now. Instead of thinking like, what is the point of this uh, philosophical <laughs> uh, yammering? But I I just have totally like I love this kind of stuff, you know. So, but if if people are more interested, then yeah, w- that's the book that I've um that I've been reading that would go more into depth than in all these different
0: metaethical views. Thank you. Yeah, I was lucky to have him as a previous guest as well. It was a fascinating mind-bending conversation too. Yeah, no, I'll look it up. Um, so that's been really helpful answering that question of, you know, what matters and how might you sort of ground a view of ethics, but there's an equally important question that's related in ethics as to who matters. So I think many people have different ways of thinking about ethics would acknowledge that in some sense, morality is about our concern for Some sort of concern for others you know if you don't have a completely relativistic or nihilistic approach or a supernatural approach there's something about whether and how we care for others uh and the follow-up question is okay which others so um again many of my guests have had a really interesting journey here where they've started out from some sort of default scope of moral consideration that you know they got from their family and society around them and how that's changed over time so it'd be interesting to know your um journey on that front too and one of the critical breakpoints really is about the human and the non-human but I'm interested in the broader story too of course so
1: yeah see this is the part that I've kind of been uh dreading a little bit because I'm like um I have like vegan moral principles I guess but I'm not really like a consistent vegan like I've I've reduced my consumption of animal products of all kinds by like conservatively like 90 percent yeah, you know, like yeah. It, it's been like way, way reduced, but um, you know, dramatically reduced, but still, um, you know, I, I'm not like totally, like I don't totally abstain from all animal products or even from meat sometimes. Usually, it's because someone else buys it for me, um, you know, or like it's already been paid for, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, you know? so I, I'm not like, um, you know, kind of like a purist about it. I'm, I'm not like. I'm usually not disgusted by um, like animal products. Like sometimes I am like, even when I was younger, before I had any vegan thought like floating in my head, I was, I couldn't eat ribs. Like, I, I think I've had ribs maybe twice in my life, yeah. you know, because they're ribs. Like yeah, I, I, I just remember- It's part of the anatomy of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember like, we were at like a steakhouse or something and I was like 15 and I was just like, I can't, like, I, I just like couldn't, I could barely stomach it. So I was like, these are just ribs. Like I can't pretend. There's no pretending that this is not just like this. The you know side of a torso of like a of an animal. Yeah. And um, you know something that, you know I was not right. Like veganism was not something that was taken seriously. I had no idea why people even thought that, um, why they should do that when I was uh, younger. Um, but I remember um, you know I started becoming sort of more sensitive to like animal rights issues. You know as you become like dimly more and more aware of factory farming. you're like that's not justifiable even if you're not a vegan or a vegetarian like participating in factory farming is morally unjustifiable like it's just it's animal cruelty on like a scale that you know I, I mean it's hard to it's hard to overstate like how evil factory farming actually is um yeah and like when I see some of these vegans who are like clearly very morally alarmed by it and then people will either make fun of them or treat it like they're kind of being hysterical. I, it just, it, it does make me very angry. I understand why a lot of vegans react the way they do. And it's hard not to, um, like, I've actually been banned from Twitter one time because I was speaking my mind about someone who's doing this, you know Um, it's hard not to get angry when people are like diminishing and trivializing the very real, very terrible suffering of like trillions and trillions of, of sentient beings. Um, but what, um, what kind of <laughs> was like a major, uh, turning point, I think I was like 19 or 20 and Ricky Gervais of all people, yeah. I heard him, uh, <laughs> I heard someone say to him, like, oh, if you love animals so much, then, uh, why do you eat them? And he was like, I don't. And I, I don't know, just, he said it so like dispassionately and like matter of factly, like, oh, if you like someone challenging him, if you like animals, why do you eat them? He's like, I don't, and I was like, yeah, you know that makes sense. Um, If you if you like animals, then don't eat them. Like it just seems like so pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean once I saw it, I couldn't really unsee it. It's like because I always have loved animals, and then it's like, well then why do you eat them? (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, uh, that is not something that I should do if I if I like animals. Um, So not all vegans are like animal lovers, but I I do love animals, and um, if you like animals, then don't eat them. It's as yeah. simple as that. Um, so, and yeah, you, I mean, that kind of broke something
0: in me. And you mentioned the, the the disgust factor, and that's really fascinating because for some people, the disgust can actually be the trigger. It can be the first thing, you know, and I've spoken to many people who, you know, when they were, you know, 10, 11, sometimes even earlier than that, when they the light went on and they realized what was on their plate was actually flesh or um, you know so on. And it's the disgust was the start, and that triggered them into thinking about the ethics. Um, for me, and, you know, I had a long, long, journey on this thing as well. So I've been probably vegetarian for, I went vegetarian in my mid-twenties, which is many decades ago now, and I've been vegan for like five or six years. So there's maybe a 20-year gap between vegetarian and vegan. And there's no perfection here either. I mean, no one lives a life without causing harm, but I still think it's a meaningful step to say that and to, you know, make the effort to exclude animal products. So I did that a few years ago. But for me, the disgust came afterwards. So it was after the thinking and the ethics and the, you know, the other stuff and, and now I think the disgust has sort of set in as a response to that rather (laughs) than the other way around. Yeah. But yeah, so you were, you were were saying the, um, that was the sort of thing that sort of was the turning point, at least in the sort of ethical stance, if you like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did feel disgusted with animal products for like a year after I became vegetarian, I would say like, um, but then that kind of faded, you know, like, uh, and like I said, I'm not really disgusted by it most of the time, except when people talk about um, babies like when people are like oh do you want lamb like oh do you want veal like that's when i'm just like what the fuck is wrong with you like that's the one time where i'm actually just like i i don't understand like i don't think i've ever eaten like baby animals uh to my knowledge yeah um like i never have i never will like i i have no like that is one area where i'm actually like yeah what's wrong with you like why are you even talking about eating like baby animals like even for someone who sees no problem with eating animals, like how do you not have an, have an issue with that at least? Um, so yeah, but other than that, I, I don't really feel disgust. Like I said, I can eat animal products without feeling disgust. I I try not to think about where it came from, but, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's, I've, I find it a fascinating subject in some ways, um, for parallel reasons with the religious naturalism, supernaturalism topic, because, um, there's almost this battle going on between these extremely powerful domineering social norms that tell you a certain set of things are right and true and ethically acceptable. And then I think, and I think you'd largely agree, a process of working through with humility, but using evidence and reason and compassion to try and come to a conclusion that is starkly dissonant with those social norms. And and it feels like quite often in the conversations I have with my guests, there's this parallel between you know, trying to use that evidence, reason and compassion to break out of those very painful social norms, both on the naturalism front and on this starts about taking non-human animals seriously. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it is really difficult because like you say, I think most people who even consume animal products, there's some really interesting survey work that shows that I think roughly half of um, US citizens, the Sentience Institute did some surveys that showed that about half of people who consume animal products. Would you know are viscerally against factory farming, and a similar proportion would actually want to see a ban in slaughterhouses. You know those cle- people clearly hadn't thought through the implications of that for their decisions, um, and things like with you know as you say, baby animals. Again, there's a sort of there's a latent ethics even amongst the people who still consume animal product that I think that triggers and weighs in. And the difficulty is often that those maybe the most egregious problems in the animal agriculture industry are used to set in contrast, maybe slightly less egregious practices, which are still I think deeply ethically sickening. But in contrast with the factory farm, the family farm doesn't seem so bad until you then look at the practices that are going on there and realize that the worst parts of the factory farm process are happening in the family farm as well. So it's it's a really fascinating moral space because um, I guess you can get to a point of clarity of just condemning the entire enterprise in general subject to sort of just transition through it but it's fascinating to see which parts of that you know the social norms stick and which things are egregious enough to break through it's it's an interesting space
1: yeah no i mean what do you think about those like happy farms you know like the the ones where it's like oh we our animals live like a normal life you know they have pasture space like they're not they're not crowded. They're not like uh, given any weird hormones or anything like because a lot of these people, it's, more, it's not just animal ethics concerns. It's also they're concerned about other things, you know, like uh, more natural food or like less uh, unhealthy stuff, whatever. Like it's usually wrapped up with like four or five different concerns and like animal ethics is sometimes thrown in there, um, you know. But uh, I mean, what do you think about some of these places that claim to say like, oh, you know, these these animals like they live normal lives. They live good lives you know, until the last day, but um, up until that point, you know, like, uh, I mean, that seems like on the face of it, more defensible. It doesn't really seem like uh, you can't really scale that up. You know, not everyone could do that. Yeah.
0: I think maybe the most insidious thing about the existence of that type of animal farming is that it allows people to believe that that's where their products are coming from while they continue to buy from factory farms. So, so that's largely what the surveys play out, you know, vast, proportions of people say I'm viscerally against factory farming and I never buy from it you know I only buy from the happy fa- family farms but in the US 99% of animal products come from factory farms so you know something doesn't work out in the math so I think there's something behaviorally that worries me about those because it gives people an excuse that uh, enables them basically not to make any change at all I think there's um, there's there's an environmental aspect to them as well which ironically because the CAFOs and the industrial factory farms are driven for super efficiency, horrific efficiency, per you know, gram of protein or calories, a happy family organic free-range farm is actually more environmentally destructive than an intensive farm. So that's another challenge to those models. And I certainly agree that they would not scale. So at the moment, um, you know, if you went from our current agriculture agricultural system to a completely plant-based one you could free up 75% of agricultural land it's like two continents but if you were to do the opposite and say let's take the intensive animal farms and make them all free range you'd need to basically turn over I think the entire planet to animal agriculture and we're not far off that already so I think there's that challenge. but the most important thing for me is the ethical stance, and I think there the core of it is really to take the perspective of you know, the other, the victim in the process. And I think you're right. You know, if I was given the choice, you can live in a factory farm or you can live in a family farm, you know, I know which will be the lesser of two evils. But at the same time, even in those nice family farms, you know, families are separated. They're essentially sexually abused for artificial insemination. Um, there's still mutilation practices that are used. But even if you strip all of that out, ultimately you're still killing a uh, sentient being taking away from its family for relatively trivial reasons. So I, I, I agree you can sort of grade degrees of horror, (laughs) but as soon as you switch to think about, you know, the perspective of the other and the victim in these stances, I end up in a extremely strict sort of line, even in, in the, the nicest animal agriculture, I just think, yeah, we need to transition to end the whole thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, as, as soon as you bring in the environmental concerns, it's like, yeah, you just have to go vegan. Like, there's really no way around yeah, it. Like, no way. <laughs> and
0: I, and I've, I've, I've argued before that, you know, even if someone has an explicitly anthropocentric worldview where only humans matter, the arguments for veganism are still completely overwhelming. You know, even if you really don't care about non-human animals at all. And I think, I, I mean, I say that with a straight face, right? The level of the challenges we've got with pollution and zoonosis and emissions and... Water use and land use—it's just—it's—it's it's one of the craziest things we could ever imagine doing. And I tweeted recently. I said, "Look, if animal agriculture didn't exist, what reasons would you give for starting it?" And it was like tumbleweed, right? This is a crazy thing to be doing. But if I pull you back to the philosophy, because because the other thing I'm not—I don't really want to do in these things—is sort of audit my guests' personal lives and so on. There's there's no perfection here. <laughs> you know, people are. No, I'm trying things. to. I'm trying to come clean. I'm trying to be like.
1: I, I feel like as a matter of consistency, I have to be like, okay, I'm you know, I've, I've only reduced by, you know, by like a huge amount, but, but still it's, it's not like I'm a purely vegan person or, or purely vegetarian, but you know, at least my kitchen is like uh, vegetarian and like, for the most part, vegan, the problem I don't I mean, I don't want to put my wife on blast here, but like it would be a vegan kitchen where not for, uh, for my wife, but um, yeah, no, she's trying to get me into one of these like happy farms that like is near Ann Arbor where we live. And, um, you know we're looking at it online and stuff and like i'm like obviously we're going to go there and look at it but um yeah it's, it it seemed like it, it was pretty much on the up and up based on what i this is like a one family farm this is not like a you know a chain or anything and um the yeah the, the main thing that i see so far that's um disturbing to me is that they do offer like milk you know and like how they there's no way around the way that you have to get milk you know like and it, this pregnancy yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you do have to like separate the families, right? So yep. there's no way around that. So
0: no way around it. Yeah. So it's just not and then, worth it. And, 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 and this is the, this is the challenge, right? Cause I've, I've, I've walked through and been around some of those farms and, and you look at the marketing and you see the idyllic fields and the happy cows and so on, but that's the thing. They won't show you the artificial insemination process. They won't show you the calf separation <laughs> and they won't take you around the slaughterhouse either. And most of the farmers won't even go to the slaughterhouse. That's one reason they tend to outsource it is because they don't want to do it themselves. It's quite often, the farmers would develop quite a attachment to their own. Well, I would. I mean,
1: part of this was conditional on me being able to see all those things. So if they don't even let me tour those things, and I'm definitely well, that, not. yeah, that'd uh, be interesting. It'd
0: be interesting to hear. Yeah. yeah, no, but I appreciate appreciate the honesty and uh, yeah, let me know. How that goes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I definitely don't. Obviously, it can't be scaled. Um, but it's not a it's not a solution that's like good for the long term or for like the the bigger scale. With the solution for the bigger scale is just lab grown meat or. You know, some kind of like fake meat that's indistinguishable from the real thing, which I think we're well on our way to having like fake meat that is like indistinguishable from real meat.
0: I completely agree, and the and the only only reason we need those is human preferences, really, because we can get everything we need from pure plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree. I think it's a combination of you know the plant classic plant agriculture, but also plant based stuff, which is already getting awesomely good, and and ultram- ultimately the cultured meat. I think that's the sort of combination that's going to turn it around, and I think. Yeah. That, the other thing, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, YouTube's and podcasts and ethical argument work quite slowly on the human mind. Whereas if you can make something fast, cheap, easy, and socially acceptable, you know, change can happen quickly. So that's what, will so. that's
1: what'll do it is once we have fake meat stuff that is um, indistinguishable from real meat, um, which we already do have in the, in like chicken sandwiches. Like if you have like the, you know, like the, the, the vegan equivalent of a McChicken is like, better or indistinguishable from like the fast food chicken sandwich but eventually everything will get to that point and it will be cheaper i think eventually because um you can uh, you don't have to like raise a whole animal and then kill it and then just take the part of it that you want you'll be able to just make the part that you want so in theory it, it should eventually be cheaper and then once people have a cheaper product that's just as good they'll buy that and then the uh the use of factory farm now that it's it's not so inconvenient and they don't have to really give anything up people will actually stop using factory farms and then we can ban it once it becomes less and less popular but that's the realistic path i mean not to skip ahead to the better future part (laughs) of uh, of the episode but that's like one of the only that that does seem kind of realistic to me like i don't think that's beyond the realm of possibilities at all and that would actually be a really positive development but in the absence of you know like fake meat stuff that's just as good, then it, it will just never happen, you know? So like, that's why I just want to like, uh, like ring vegans by the neck who want to like, who are like opposed to fake meat or lab grown meat or something. I'm like, this is the way that it stops. Like, this is the way we stop factory
0: farming. Yeah, absolutely. It's not about, you know, veganism isn't about the vegans. It's about uh, the non-human animals. So uh, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. And, we'll, and we might come back to some of those topics later on. Um And um, and um I, I, I totally agree on even if you put the ethics to one side, this sheer inbuilt inefficiency of animal agriculture is absolutely mind-blowing. You know, As soon as you learn about that land use scale and as soon as you learn about how much of human edible crops are fed to animals and as soon as you learn about feed conversion ratios, you, know, you need to put 23 times the amount of calories into a cow to get one calorie or you know, numbers. But the, the ratio of, and the waste, nearly all of that is basically turned to blood, sweat, heat, you know, energy loss um, it's catastrophically wasteful there yeah. so I agree I think some of those other facts will will help and we can keep chipping away at the ethics as well in the meantime But if I if I drag you back to the theory there's an implication there that um, your moral consideration I would assume includes all humans but it, at least in theory would include non-human animals and do you think about that in the context of sentience do you care about non-human animals because of their capacity to suffer and flourish would you say that sentience is what guides you there or is there something else? Um, I definitely care about um, all humans.
1: Um, And well, I mean, you know what I mean? They're they're all like morally equivalent. I don't actually care about all humans, but they're morally equivalent. Yeah. Um, And uh, you know, same for non-human animals. Yeah. Sentience is ultimately what I care about. I I'm kind of open-minded to whether there are other things that matter morally. Like I used to be pretty strict, uh, I used to be pretty attracted to utilitarianism, like in a pretty strict form, like hedonic act utilitarianism, and now I'm a little bit more of a pluralist, or you might say like a particularist, like I don't think there are these very simple moral principles that can be stated in a sentence and then like that actually um, can explain everything that we think is right and wrong. Like So that's why I don't really accept utilitarianism anymore even though sometimes I say like I caucus with the utilitarians because I end up agreeing with them like most of the time, like certainly more than like natural law theorists who think that like, you know, oral sex is demonic. And like, you know, you've got other like natural law theorists like Tim or I can't pronounce his last name, but he wrote a paper defending factory farms, like saying factory farms are actually good. And um, I think he's a natural law theorist. So, you know, if you're comparing like, you know, the, the the critiques of different normative theories that people put out there. Like, well, on the other hand, on one hand, we have natural law theorists who think that oral sex is morally wrong and who are defending factory farming. <laughs> on the other hand, we have Peter Singer, who's perhaps a little insensitive about disability and thinks that it's, um, you know, morally, uh, you know, justified to abort fetuses who will grow up to be severely disabled. So if you can't tell which one of those is worse, then, I think you might be morally kind of like stunted or something, like one of those is obviously yeah <laughs> like yeah. Not so yeah, i mean i I agree with utilitarians like ninety plus percent of the time um and with like sentientists like ninety plus percent of the time, so even if I'm technically not a utilitarian or a sentientist, I'm like going to be on the same side as them pretty much all of the time. It's just I think there might be other things that matter besides sentience yeah. and and um
0: i' um. Often, sentientism is associated with utilitarianism, just because of people like Peter Singer and others who've gone down that path. But I think it—I've tried to position—is much more pluralistic than that. So I think that, and you know, I've t- spoken to deontologists, I've spoken to feminist care ethics of people, I've spoken to um, people have a you know a sort of modernized. A Kantian view like Christine Korsgaard, who extends that to non-human animals. So I think as long as your moral consideration includes all sentient beings, you can still apply lots of different ethical systems to that. Um, you don't have to follow a utilitarian approach. Um, so I quite like that pluralism. Um, and I and I'm also open to the idea that sentience might not be the only thing that matters. So I've tried to frame sentientism as insisting that every sentient being gets to be included, but it doesn't necessarily say that sentience is the only thing that matters, and it doesn't necessarily say that. You couldn't extend it beyond that if you want to. The most important thing is that we don't exclude any sentient beings. Um, so I've had conversations with people like Susanna Monzo and others who talked about whether dignity or autonomy or that there might be some other things that could be factors that have their own independent uh, moral weight. Um, I tend to be quite a strict sentientist and that whenever I think about those other things, I think, yes, they're important because of the way they impact on the quality of my sentient experience. So whether that's, you know, uh, I'm doing that in appropriately or not, or whether I'm just obsessed with this idea of sentience, I don't know. But I'm quite open to the idea there's there's more.
1: No, I think that's reasonable. Um I just think there are some counterexamples, and not many by the way, but I just think there are a couple counterexamples to that view where when you're trying to I mean I know I'm thinking about this like a utilitarian, but it's like doing uh the best for sentient creatures, like maximizing like positively charged hedonic experiences, um, and like minimizing experiences with a negative valence, um, there are a few circumstances where that intuitively seems like the wrong thing to do. Um, In almost every circumstance, it seems like the right thing to do. But there are a couple, um, you know, to go back to Michael Humer again, like he raises like several objections to utilitarianism where it's like, it seems like the right thing to do is not the thing that maximizes good experiences and minimizes bad experiences for sentient beings. And they're unusual but it's like that's all you really need as a counter example you know so um i am kind of convinced by that that's why i'm more of like a pluralist slash particularist um because i don't think everything comes down to just you know it, like adding up the uh the qualitative experiences of of sentient beings um even though that's pretty good like that's a pretty i mean you're gonna get to the right answer like 99 percent of the time if that is what you think yeah makes sense
0: yeah. and i think that's one other thing that i've tried to do with this idea of sentientism is to it's irritatingly neutral on so many things, but that's partly deliberate because I want it to be very pluralistic and to set a sort of almost minimal baseline so again, it doesn't actually set a sort of um optimization or maximisation agenda it doesn't set a level of explicit demandingness it's It's really just a scope of moral inclusion, so you know we have to include all sentient beings in our moral considerations and do that meaningfully but beyond that. There are different you know debates about levels of levels of demandingness or the imperative to maximize or you know how to trade off different interests within that that's all fair game, I guess, and maybe those topics are just too difficult for me to engage with, so you know, stick with that baseline of just at least not excluding any sentient yeah yeah
1: no i'm I'm totally with you when it comes to you know sentient beings like like humans and non human animals um but i e- even if um sentience goes further down than you know vertebrates for instance it, it, you do reach a point where it does seem to just not matter like even though they are technically sentient like they yeah. don't have the kind of complex experiences like if you think that you know uh, like sponges have like this faint dim awareness like you know just like a half remembered dream or something it's like i don't think there's any problem with like whatever you do to sponges like i just uh, even if they are technically sentient they're just so like it's just such a low degree of uh moral salience that i just i don't really care about sponges even if they do turn out to be sentient because i know it it can't possibly be like what it's like
0: for you or me or a dog or a chicken well i'd like to come back to that in a moment as well because i think it links to another topic that you've done a lot of thinking on um but i guess there's before we come back to this idea about grading sentience or if there's a you know minimal levels of it there's another challenge to sentientism one is the anthropocentric thing that says look only humans matter right often whether it's stated or not that is the sort of default mode of operation of modern humanity unfortunately there's another challenge to sentientism which is hold on you're not going far enough right you're discriminating against the non-sentient stuff so sentientism again it doesn't tell you which things are sentient It just says take a naturalistic approach to working it out right so it doesn't set a boundary it doesn't list species it doesn't Say anything about plant sentience for example it just says whatever sentience is and wherever it is it matters that's it so but then use a naturalistic approach but if we assume for example you know plants or aren't sentient you can go into biocentrism which says all living things matter regardless of sentience or you can go even further than that into ecocentrism and say look ecosystems rocks rivers trees the planet has gaia habitats you know those things matter intrinsically independent of any sentience as well what's your thought about going beyond sentience and thinking about you know bio or as a even more generous moral scope i mean i,
1: I i'm pretty sure that i mean I'm, I'm certain that sentience matters but then when it comes to some of this other stuff i'm like less certain about it but I, I don't think it's totally crazy to say that um you know the sort of like complexity of life is valuable in and of itself um regardless of whether or not you know, something like panpsychism is true. So, if you can even imagine panpsychism not being true, um if you can imagine that, <laughs> this is where um, I wanted to
0: go. <laughs> <off. laughs> um,
1: if you can even conceive of such a thing, I still
0: kind Cause of because in, in a way, under a panpsychist, well, we can come back to that in a minute. But in, in a way, under a panpsychist view, there's no such thing as anything that isn't conscious. Therefore, right. yeah. you sort of, you know, ecocentrism and you know consciousnessism all collapse together in a way.
1: But well, I mean, strictly speaking. Most things are not conscious on panpsychism, so it doesn't mean that everything is conscious. But um, the uh, I still think that maybe living systems have intrinsic value regardless of whether or not they're sentient. Um, I'm certainly sympathetic to the view that states of consciousness are the only intrinsically valuable things in nature. But I, I, you know, if you think about like two planets, you know, and one of them is just like a a dust bowl. And the other one has, is just teeming with like life. It's like this really complex rainforest, but there's nothing sentient like anywhere. I just, I do have like this sort of weak intuition that like, yeah, that one is more valuable than this one, even though neither involve any sentience. And I think some people would just reject that. They would say, no, who cares? Like if there's no sentient beings to observe the beauty or like to like flourish in that system, then it just doesn't matter. And I I don't know. I just I don't feel that way. I I have no intention of like um spending a lot of time in like national parks or anything, but I'm so glad they're there. You know, like um I, I don't know. I just think that this kind of stuff is valuable just in itself,
0: I think. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And I and I share that intuition, although I again I I would probably lay out the argument you just did, which is the differences between those two planets is the way you're thinking about them in your sentient mind, and intrinsically, you know, there's, if there's nothing there to experience it, then there really is no difference. But I, I still feel that pull. It feels odd to us, um, and I think I'd, you know, I'd share a rich appreciation of the value of the ecosystems and biosphere, but I do that in an instrumental way. That can still be quite rich, right? So the reason I care about the environment we all share is because of all the sextillion sentient beings that live on this planet. That's the reason I care about this planet, and not so much about. You know, Venus or Mars or or, or somewhere else or It's because of the impact on the sentient beings. Um, but I guess my frustration, again, is more about, I'm more worried about the exclusion of sentient beings than I am the exclusion of other stuff. And my frustration with most bio or ecocentrists is that a biological, c- consistent bio or ecocentrist would also care about all sentient beings as well because they're part of the biosphere and they're part of the ecosphere. But most bio and ecocentrists seem to have conveniently disregarded non-human sentient animals from practical moral consideration. And, and that gives the lie to a, a lot of ecocentrism and a lot of environmentalism is really just another veneer on an anthropocentric worldview. So my stance is, you know, I don't mind if you want to be more generous and go further, but firstly, you've got to recognize and morally consider all sentient beings. And I'd also argue that even if you do care about plants and rocks and rivers and ecosystems in their own right intrinsically, surely the capacity to experience suffering still gives you some other additional reason to care about that entity morally. So I'm sort of open-minded, but I still want to keep this. You know, just don't exclude the sentient beings.
1: Yeah. No, I. I mean, I've heard you say this like you know several times. I. I guess I just don't have the same experience with environmentalists. Not because I've had different experiences with them, but because I've had no experiences with them. (laughs) Because I don't think I talk to them very often. But it sounds like you have. And yeah, I mean, if this is a prevalent view, then yeah, I mean, that's just crazy to care more about, you know, the ecosystem than you care about sentient beings. Like, obviously, the main reason to care about the ecosystem is the sentient beings who live in the ecosystem. Like, that's the main reason you would care about it. And then maybe there's this additional thing that, oh, it's just valuable in and of itself. But that's, that doesn't compare to the billions of humans that are living here. Like, it just doesn't compare. So uh, even if there is this, like, that, Things that morally matter beyond sentience, um, states of consciousness, then I just don't think they're nearly as important as like states of consciousness, you know, even if they're so. I think there can just be a there can still be like a hierarchy, even if you think there are multiple things of intrinsic value, just like humans are more important than chickens, you know, like if you have to hit a human or if your car is out of control and you can either hit a human or a chicken, you got to hit the chicken, like it's a no brainer, like no, I can't think of, um. I I don't spend a lot of time talking to vegans or environmentalists or anything, but I
0: would hope that everyone would agree with that. You know, I I don't know. Do you think that they would? I think I think most would. And and I think that's one of the other things that sentientism is neutral It doesn't say every sentient being should be given exactly equal moral consideration. It just says they all should be given moral consideration. So some people will, in theory, push for a more egalitarian approach that says as soon as something is minimally sentient, it counts. But I think even they, you know, in that thought experiment, would have to acknowledge that, you know, if the choice is a spider or a chicken or a human, there's a clear choice there. Uh, even if theoretically they'd like to be more egalitarian, um, I think others um, will look at uh, sentience as a really diverse, uh, whether it's a class of information processing or something else. They'll see the diversity of it and recognise that, you know it may therefore make sense to recognize different degrees of sentience, maybe in some sort of really complex multidimensional way. And therefore you could grade moral consideration in different ways as well. Um, As you were hinting at earlier on, you know, with the super simplest sentient beings, it might have some absolutely minimal level of sentience, but does it have the same, should we give it the same moral weight? So a lot of that stuff, sentientism is again, conveniently neutral on and sort of leaves it open for debate. Um, but I think most people intuitively would recognize there's. it makes sense to have some space for, for grading in there to some degree. And there's, there's some cautionary uh, points there. One is because you know it is another easy way for us humans to put ourselves at the, the top of some imagined pyramid and say, we're the most sentient, everything else matters less. And you can see where that leads. So some people follow that path. And we should be skeptical of that because us humans are good at inventing hierarchies that we're at the top of. But I think there's also some completely biological, naturalistic ways of recognizing that in some senses, I'm sure we as humans do have a richness of sentient experience that maybe isn't available to some non human animals. That doesn't mean um, the same isn't true the other way around. You know, there are certain experiences that aren't available to us. And I think it's also possible, maybe even likely, that some of the simpler sentient beings have a visceral intensity of experience that might be just as serious as ours. You know, I think ultimately that's why sentience evolved, is because it was. Go towards good stuff go away from bad stuff and that could be pretty intense so just because a you know uh, a being might have less neurons than us maybe has a narrower range of sentient experiences they could be just as viscerally intense so we could be i think we should be very careful and prudent about that but i you know personally i'd certainly recognize some sort of sense of gradient weighting of moral consideration there too oh yeah yeah there has to be some kind of grading
1: but i remember richard dawkins making this point where he said that um maybe intelligence Kind of diminishes the need to have really intense pain yeah. and pleasure. Yeah. Like, yeah, you can experience pain that you couldn't if you were less intelligent. Like, you have to have a certain level of intelligence to, you know, be betrayed in like a really complex way because you need like a complex social system or to have like betrayal and, and the kind of ways that humans can be betrayed, but you can't be betrayed in that same way if you're a non human animal. But at the same time, you know, physical pain and pleasure might not be as intense. In some ways because you don't need that much of an incentive because you can kind of see other reasons why you shouldn't do that thing so it might be the case that um less intelligent animals you know non-human animals are like they experience pain more intensely than we do because they need the stronger prodding because they they're not like reflecting or thinking about the other reasons why they shouldn't do these maladaptive things So it's totally possible that non-human animals have like a worse experience of physical pain than we do.
0: Yeah. I think that's, and that's where I think this need for prudence comes from. One of my previous guests talked about the thoughts of experiment of, you know, a a chimpanzee going to the dentist, you know, we probably feel exactly the same physical experiences, but I can mitigate that because I know I'm there. I know I'm being helped. I know there's a benefit the other side of it. Whereas for a chimpanzee who doesn't, isn't able to understand the context, even if the physical sensations are identical, the, the nature of the experience will just be viscerally horrific, um, right? So I think that's another example we, you know, maybe we can, in some senses, evolutionary don't need such an intense experience because we have rationality or other things going on, but we've also got ways we can mitigate our own suffering psychologically or through other means that just aren't available to non-human animals. So, yeah. I think yeah. Like if
1: you just, if you leave the gym after a really good workout and you're kind of sore, like that feels good in a way, but if you just woke up one day and you felt like that for no reason, you'd be like, I need to go to the doctor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if it, just having some reason, you know, why you're going through that suffering, you know, it makes the suffering a lot more um, endurable, you know, or maybe not even have that negative
0: of a valence at all. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this idea of going beyond sentience or not, and we've talked about this idea of grading sentience. Um, one of the topics I'm really interested in discussing with you that sentientism itself is neutral on is, okay, what actually is sentience? So there are sentientists who um, have a panpsychist view. There are sentientists who have um, an illusionist view. There are sentientists who have a sort of functional naturalist, sort of materialist view. There's all sorts of philosophies of mind about what sentience and also consciousness is. Um, But I was interested to explore that with you, partly to tease out whether it has an implication for, Our ethical scope. So some people will say, okay, if we have a sentientist scope, and if they think of sentience and consciousness as essentially equivalent, and then you have a much more expansive view of the prevalence of consciousness in the universe, you know, in in the silliest terms, does an electron feel pain, right? Do we have to radically change our ethics? And maybe does it completely destroy our ethics? Um, So that's one way of asking the question. But I'm interested in whether you think of sentience and consciousness as um the same thing or distinct concepts and how do your views about the philosophy of mind play back into this concern for suffering flourishing and sentience yeah now i think that your
1: views in philosophy of mind will
0: end up having ethical
1: implications most likely and i used to kind of resist that with panpsychism like um yeah so i i do think sentience is a bit more prevalent in the natural world than uh, most people do <laughs> um but I, I used to try to resist the ethical implications, but, um, no, I think it does have ethical implications, but they're mostly positive. Um, I don't think it like destroys our ethics, even though it is a totally reasonable question to say, well, okay, you think sentience is one of the main things that matters, if not the only thing that matters morally, and you think sentience is everywhere. So, I, I mean, like, doesn't that seem to diminish, um, you know, our concern for like each other or non-human animals if everything is conscious? Well, I mean, Panpsychists don't believe that everything is conscious. Like, I don't think that my table is conscious or my chair is conscious. So all the things that you kind of pre-reflectively think are not conscious are probably not conscious on panpsychism. But there are still, you know, many, many more things that are conscious, like most organisms probably are conscious. So, you know, you might say, Well, isn't even a vegan diet indefensible if you're a panpsychist? But as you already mentioned, if you're just trying to minimize like the number of plants that are uh, killed, if you think there's some faint sentience there so it's not morally neutral to eat plants, then um, becoming a vegan is still the better way to minimize that because, we, I mean, like you know, factory farmed animals eat quite a lot of plants and like that's what most of the farmland actually goes to, if I'm not mistaken, is like the plants that feed the factory farmed animals, right? Like two yeah, thirds I mean, of it. Yeah.
0: And, and the feed conversion ratios vary a lot by species, but I, on average, a good ballpark is 10 times so you need to put 10 <laughs> times the amount of plants in terms of you know calories protein into an animal to get that same amount out i don't think it's quite i don't think it's where most of the food goes through to but for some food types it is more than half so i think for soy for example 78 percent of it goes to animal feed.
1: Hmm. yeah yeah so even if you were just trying to do a, you know minimize the number of sentient beings you consumer like the damage that you're doing to the world then you would still obviously go vegan and that's not even in, invoking all the other reasons that you should go vegan yeah. but um <laughs> yeah. it's unavoidable okay like it don't use panpsychism as an excuse to not <laughs> yeah. go vegan yeah. it's like that it, it can't be done i'm sorry but okay. um yeah it's inescapable <laughs> um but yeah so with panpsychism i think it might have some other um ethical implications as well where you know, so some people are neocartesians. Obviously, neocartesianism is crazy, regardless of your views of philosophy of mind. Just the idea that non-human animals don't have any experiences and, like, you can just do whatever you want to them because they're just mechanisms. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's obviously incorrect and also very morally perverse. Like, so, but panpsychism does basically ensure that you can't possibly hold that view. Um, You know, so I do still hear sometimes a weak form of neocartesianism, like something that's pretty common. Um, is the idea that fish can't feel pain. Like, I don't know where this idea comes from, but like yeah. they have nervous systems. Yeah. They, they have eyes. Like, what do you think is going on with their <laughs> oh, eyes? Yeah. They're they're seeing things, you know, with their yeah. eyes. They have experiences, you know? So like the idea that they can't feel pain. I mean, it's just completely crazy. So, you know, I've seen people scale fish alive because they're like, well, fish can't feel pain. And it's like, so, um, and actually this is kind of interesting. One time I was presenting just the idea of panpsychism to like a family friend and she was like, a, she had a pretty unique reaction to it, which is that she was immediately attracted to it. Not usually how people react to panpsychism. She immediately thought it was cool, but she couldn't accept it because her religious views implied that it was okay to eat animals and panpsychism would imply that it's not okay to eat animals in her mind. So I didn't say any of this, but that's just what she read it as. She was like, well, that actually sounds really plausible to me, but I can't accept it because it conflicts with my religious view that it's okay to eat animals. And if you're right about this, then it's not okay to eat animals. So that was a a pretty strange reaction um, to panpsychism. But um, yeah, it does kind of like put a final bullet in the head of neocartesianism which is something that absolutely uh, needs to die and does still exist in in some forms. So there are a couple of other ethical implications, I would say like environmentalist implications. So if you do happen to think that states of consciousness are the only intrinsically valuable things in nature, which is a plausible view, then saying that, you know, something like the earth has a state of consciousness, you know, or saying that something like um, a river or a tree or whatever, you know, now these things have intrinsic value and not just instrumental value. Whereas before, in like the kind of post-Cartesian world that we've been living in, it says that, you know, these things are just mechanisms and whatever value they might have, it's all instrumental value. So if they're valuable to us, then yeah, they're valuable, but that's the only reason why. You don't actually have to like respect them on their own terms or anything. And, you know, panpsychism seems to, uh, you know, kind of just erode that view. If you think that states of consciousness are valuable let alone if you think they're the only valuable thing, intrinsically valuable things. So now the natural world doesn't just have instrumental value to us, which has been the source of a lot of our um, destruction of the environment is like, well, we can just tear down entire forests if we need the lumber to build more like high rise apartments or something like that. And if you view something like a forest as intrinsically valuable, then it's just not morally the same act anymore. You know, so it, destroying a forest, if it's less like Destroying a mechanism and building a new mechanism, and more like um, killing an animal, then you have to have some kind of moral justification for that. In a way that you don't, if it's just you know an insentient mechanism that only has instrumental value. So I think panpsychism could kind of imbue the natural world with intrinsic value, and make us care more about the environment. Or again, it's not that you can't destroy anything or change anything that has intrinsic value. You know, like we do that all the time, but it's just, you have to have a good reason for it, you know, and you have to do it with a certain level of respect. You know, it, it's not nothing, you know, if you kill an animal, like if you kill an animal, you have to have a pretty good reason to do it. It's not like kicking a rock or something. And when it comes to destroying a tree, well, on panpsychism, that's more like, you know, killing a fish or, or you know, something along those lines, you know? So I think it does give people a different attitude towards natural things and towards the environment where it's more, all of their actions are more morally salient, I guess, and there has to be more of a justification. And I think it might bring about more of a feeling of like respect for uh, the natural world, which we've been treating like it's an insentient mechanism that only has instrumental value basically
0: for the last few hundred years. And you can kind of see where that's gotten us. Yeah. Thank you. And then you, so that helps us think more intrinsically about the value of things that we might otherwise have seen instrumental and you avoid this sort of super flattening everything matters so nothing matters because of this idea of grading and recognizing the fact that you know the consciousness that you have in your mind is not morally equivalent to the consciousness in a blade of grass so it still allows that space to you know consider consider the moral weight in a, in a different way too and i don't i don't know if this works but Something I explored when I talked to Luke Roloff, so you mentioned before. I know you've spoken to before as well. Fascinating mind. Um, and I found it really interesting because, I, in a way, I come from a much more sort of um, boring philosophy of mind that just sees it as an evolved capacity that probably uh, developed during the Cambrian or Pre Cambrian era as a result of you know, the adaptiveness of um, doing information processing that modeled the self, modeled the environment, and made us want to go towards good stuff and away from bad stuff. So in that sense, I see it as a, you know, a, a biologically evolved so far, really rich class of information processing. And it just happens to feel this way to run it. So and many other sentientists disagree, as I know you will too. So, so. Well, that- I actually, just to, just to interject,
1: I totally agree with everything you just said. I just don't think there was an arbitrary cutoff where there was just total insentience, but yeah, obviously it, it did okay. evolve these like, you know, modeling the environment and being, motivated in more and more complex ways, but I just think that sort of motivational force was kind of there at the bottom, you know, so like the way that you and I like go towards certain things and are averted from like negative stimuli, like I think it's the same kind of thing, just even on like a very small like cellular or atomic level, so the same kind of thing that motivates you and me is the same kind of thing that motivates small particles, but there can be dramatic changes in complexity in that. And also, like you said, like, you know, modeling the environment, navigating a more complex, like, social reality. So I actually don't disagree with what you said. I just don't think there
0: was, like, a cutoff where that stopped. exactly. Yeah, you think that essential kernel of awareness was actually predated that process, that evolution mm-hmm. process, and there's much more prevalent. And, it, and that was one of the things that was interesting in my conversation with Luke, because he's, he has a panpsychist view, and I'm sure you have different varieties of how you play that through. But we've both ended up in a very similar position ethically, both vegan, both have a sort of, what you might call a start. Sent- t- stance. And what I was exploring with him was whether there's value in almost disconnecting the idea of sentience and consciousness. So that you could say, but there's one way in which I like the idea of sentience because it seems to me the, mor- the morally salient component of consciousness. So a lot of people, when they're talking about consciousness, load loads of extra stuff into it. They talk about, you know, Advanced views of the self, the concept of self identity, the ability to plan for the future, a certain level of sapience and cognition, and blah, blah, blah. And I want to strip all that out and say that's all very interesting. But that's not what's morally salient. The morally salient thing is just the capacity to have an experience, particularly a valenced experience. So, in that sense, I'm suggesting that sentence is a subset of this big, messy thing that people call consciousness, which they often define in ways that privilege us because that's what us humans love to do. But there's a different way of Disconnecting the two, where well, you could actually say, if you have a panpsychist view, where well, you think that kernel of essential awareness is much more prevalent and predates the evolutionary process that led to animals, could that consciousness, you know, maybe a micro consciousness, actually be insentient? So there's a sense of where a particle or an electron or whatever it might be, might be aware in some sense, but because it doesn't have you know any of the perceptual apparatus we do and it doesn't have the information processing capacity we seem to have that seems to drive the valenced experience maybe there's a sort of micro conscious something there as part of its essence but it doesn't actually give it the capacity to suffer or to flourish and and i quite like that idea i don't know if it works philosophically but i quite like that idea partly because i just can't get my head around what it would be like to be an electron because it seems to be such a simple thing i don't understand physically how any process could even operate and you take it to the next level of a photon where time doesn't even pass for i just you know so i can I, I can i can say okay if you want to define consciousness as something that's fundamentally essential and is part of that i can sort of accord that but I still can't imagine it really suffering or flourishing in a morally salient way. So that's another way I I wonder if you can almost disconnect consciousness and sentience so that maybe macro consciousnesses are sentient, but micro consciousnesses aren't. I don't know if that works.
1: No, I I think we're in total agreement there, especially with the first part where, you know, consciousness is this very messy um, term that means, you know, 50 different things and like, yeah, sentience, I feel like you're trying to hone in on what's actually morally relevant here. Yeah. So, like, you know, I think it was John Stuart Mill who said, like, it's not whether it can reason, it's not whether it can engage in these, like, higher order functions, it's whether or not it can suffer. Yeah, Bentham. like, that's, a, yeah, yeah. Oh, Bentham said that. Yeah, yeah. Could, one of those guys. Um, so, I think that that's the same kind of move where it's like, what exactly is morally relevant about consciousness? It's not really, like, complex um, information processing. Like, my computer can do that, you know, but I don't think that my computer is conscious. and um. I don't think it's like morally relevant. Like that's something that does just have like instrumental value. Um, so yeah, if you're just trying to identify, like what's the morally salient aspect of consciousness then yeah, sentience is like a good way of, of getting there, you know, like it sentience sounds to me sort of like subjective experience, you know, like the thing that makes the hard problem hard, you know, whatever people are trying to get at with that term, you know, we're not talking about all the complex functions of human consciousness. We're not talking about all these higher order thoughts. You know, we're talking about um, something that's pretty simple, stripped down, and just gives something a positive or negative valence. Like whatever that is, that's the morally relevant part. So yeah, if you want to call that sentience, then I'm totally with you. I, I tend to use sentience as kind of synonymous with subjective experience. Um, But as long as you're clear about how you're defining the term, then yeah, that's totally fine. And I'd totally be with you. um, Because I think that um, I would say that if you took an electron and like flung it out into space, um, it would be sentient in the sense that it would be like something for it to exist. But an electron that's like a part of my right arm is not conscious it's a part of a broader system you know it's been merged into this bigger hole so it's not like anything to be that electron but if you took one and like flung it out into space then um yeah i think it would be like something so i wouldn't have an issue with calling it sentient but if you did stipulate that like no by sentience i mean like morally relevant forms of sentience then i'd be like oh yeah well it's insentient then yeah, i don't correct, care about yeah. it <laughs> but, like, and, the, and there's a danger uh, i'm yeah.
0: just sort of using circular definitions to get back to where i want to get to but but I, I, it feels like it sort of works to me because in a sense mm-hmm. As we said earlier on, I guess there is this sense that morality, if it's anything, is about a concern for others and their perspective. And for that to bite the other has to care about their own perspective Mm -hmm. in that sense, so I can imagine an electron being minimally conscious, but in such a way that there's zero valence there, it doesn't, you know, there's some sense of awareness, but it, it doesn't really care about itself. You know what I mean? Whereas, oh, it doesn't whereas, It doesn't have self-consciousness. It wouldn't no, have any no. of this
1: higher order stuff. It would just be this brute what it's likeness that maybe there's some feeling of like kind of wanting to go towards these things with positive charge or something, but like it would be so, it's so dimly, like it's literally yeah, not yeah. R- relatable to our, to our experience at all. But, um, yeah, I, I just, um. Yeah, electron I mean you mentioned earlier that it's hard to imagine electrons being conscious because there's not much of a process going on there. Yeah. Um I would push back on that a little bit because electrons are not like these little tiny billiard balls or like grains of sand, like how we like ordinarily imagine them. They actually are kind of this like processual, kind of fluctuating uh you know, they're not really like objects, they're more, you know, processes. So it's easier to imagine and each one is potentially
0: everywhere all the time. (laughs)
1: I I don't even try to bother with some of the yeah. physics stuff. It, it's too <laughs> weird. But um it's but I mean the other thing is panpsychists think that consciousness or you know sentience or subjective experience or what have you, just the what it's likeness of of um of like you know, our inner lives, like that is just kind of brute and fundamental. So you don't need any kind of process for it to be, you don't need like two particles interacting somehow to to make that happen. It's just the raw material that's being worked with so there doesn't have to be some kind of process and then it emerges from this process like it just is the stuff that's doing the processing (laughs) like it is the stuff that's undergoing all those processes so you don't get it from something more fundamental you just start with it and then like you know so i can see how intuitively though if you're just picturing like a little electron grain of sand that's just not doing anything it's like well how is it like anything to be like i i feel that same intuition but i'm just saying i I think of things, A, more as processes instead of like static objects, and B, um, you know, sentience is supposed to be, you know, I should specify like, you know, morally irrelevant sentience is, um, you know, kind of the uh, basis, like it's sort of the, it's at the foundation of reality on panpsychism, like consciousness is fundamental on panpsychism, it doesn't like come out of anything, it doesn't like emerge from any process, like you get more complex forms of consciousness,
0: out of this more basic form of consciousness. Yeah, thank you. And I think, in a way, there's without doing a deep dive into panpsychism that I'm unqualified for. There's there's one sort of emotional route I think some people find to panpsychism, which is something like, you know, my own consciousness is the thing I'm most confident exists. I I don't. It feels like, and I don't understand how it could be purely a matter of the physical process that's gone in my mind it's it feels like my intuition and maybe my philosophizing leads me to believe it is distinct from those things in some way and because i can't understand why it would come out about from the physical process that's going on in my mind um it, there's a sort of process of then assuming it must be fundamental because it must have come from somewhere so i don't find that path uh, there's no real pull there because it feels like another example of the sort of copernican human logic of just assuming that we and things about us and our consciousness must be central or fundamental to everything because we're so amazing. So I don't feel the emotional pull of that. But at the same time, there's a path towards panpsychism that I am much more drawn to because in a sense, my view is that sentience and also consciousness, but particularly sentience, is just a class of information processing. And if it is just a class of information processing, as you were saying earlier on, okay, well, where does that start? So I think there is something distinctive about the pre-Cambrian and the evolutionary process that gave rise to sentience but if you want to describe what's going on in those sentient beings in purely mechanistic terms as patterns of information processing and there was information processing going on long before the precambrian and you know a, in a funny sense an electron in its broadest sense is doing some sort of information processing yeah so, yeah no that's, know, so that's I, don't see, I don't see a qualitative difference between what's going on in my head and what's going on in you know, this, this coffee mug in a sense, you know, there's mm-hmm. electrons buzzing and quarks doing this, doing their shit, you know, there's yeah. so, so that's a different path that maybe makes me, you know, I can see that attraction more that there isn't some magical difference. So maybe we are part of yeah. a continuum and, but
1: I don't know. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly what it brings a lot of people in that direction is like, yeah, there's not, there's not a fundamental difference. There's nothing magical about me. Like I'm just a bunch of physical processes that are, you know, I, I'm just a collection of physical activity.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah, it's almost it's, like you, it's, just, al- it's almost as if there's a there's a there's a an arrogant path to panpsychism, but then there's a super <laughs> humble path. <to> panpsychism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's the one I
1: relate to more. That's why it always it always cracks me up when people say that, like, yeah, panpsychism is kind of anthropocentric. I'm like, yeah. I feel like it's the least possible anthropocentric <laughs> view. We're really it's
0: not like, special. <laughs> yeah,
1: you have really been underestimating how not special we are. Um, yeah, but it's like there's no fundamental. There's no real distinction between the kind of physical activity. You know, it's just protons, neutrons, and electrons here. You know, they're just arranged in a funny way because of evolutionary history. Um, But yeah, like if you were saying, like, you know, you, you specified earlier, like, that it's a special kind of information processing that leads to consciousness. And you have to add that because if you didn't, then you would just default be a panpsychist. You say, like, oh, if it's just information processing. Well, that's happening everywhere.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, you and, know, physical, and, yeah. So. And that's partly where my slightly and you picked me up on this, um, my slightly cheeky analogue to PowerPointism
2: mm-hmm.
0: came into play. Because in a sense, I was saying, you know, PowerPoint is just one type of information processing, but that doesn't mean all the information processing is PowerPoint, in the same right. way as I see consciousness as a class of information processing, but that doesn't mean all information processing is. So I guess that's where it's slightly cheekily draw. And it, part of it comes back to, as you were saying, the terms and the usage. What, you know, what do we mean by these words in the first place? Which,
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, it just comes back to the hard problem where you can get PowerPoint from non-PowerPoint. Like you can get human beings from non-human beings. Like you can exhaustively describe human beings in physical terms. And, um, you know, there's nothing left over except for our subjective experiences. Like it, that just seems like you can't really, you know, if you say, how do you get human beings from things that are not human, then you can like tell an evolutionary story and it doesn't seem like anything's really left over. You know, like it, it's totally fine to get human beings from non-human beings. Um, it's totally fine to get life from non-life. But when you're talking about getting subjective experiences from a point of view, like the ones that I'm directly acquainted with right now, you're talking about getting subjective experiences from non-subjectivity that's when it just seems like you're starting with the wrong kind of thing you know so it's like you can get powerpoint from non-powerpoint you can get things that are nifty from things that aren't nifty so like your your powerpoint objection is exactly dan dennett's like big objection to niftyism yeah. yeah oh everything is nifty um a better point of his objection there is that panpsychism wouldn't seem to change anything like, what does it really change anything to say everything is nifty? He's like, well, what is it, how does it change anything to say everything is conscious? Well, I mean, obviously, we don't say everything is conscious. And obviously, we've been talking about some of the implications panpsychism might have. But still, it's worth saying, what difference does this difference make? You know, like, so, okay, so panpsychism is true. So what? Like, what follows from that? Well, solving the hard problem, I think, is not nothing. <laughs> but like, you know, the main thing that, that pulls me to panpsychism um, cause the stuff we're talking about earlier about how there's no fundamental difference between me and the tree outside my window in ter- like physical terms, like it's just, I'm just the same material that's been arranged differently. Yeah. That, that, um, intuitively makes sense to me. But the reason I became a panpsychist is more the hard problem, like, or what Josh Rasmussen has taken to calling the construction problem of like, you start with this physical stuff over here that can be exhaustively described quantitatively nothing is left out and then you just put that together in the right way and eventually you get subjective experiences from a point of view that's just the wrong kind of stuff to be working with to get from that to that it's like starting with um you know Beethoven's ninth symphony and trying to get to like the planet Neptune or something it's like oh well Neptune is just Beethoven's ninth symphony arranged uh, Neptune wise it's like no it 's not i can 't even really identify why it 's not it's just that 's the wrong kind of thing and I think <laughs> that 's yeah.
0: the absolute heart of it isn 't it is it if, if you think through that process of building up to a human what 's left over is subjective awareness, then you have the hard problem and I guess my amateur start is i 'm not sure anything 's left over I think subjective awareness is it's just a characteristic of you know, what it 's like to run this sort of information processing and in that sense you know our our internal reports of our own consciousness i don 't see as radically different from the reports i might get from someone else about theirs and, and i could imagine a situation where you might even be able to run a sort of bat emulator that would actually give me or an emerson emulator that would give me temporarily the experience of what it's really like to be like you and i do think that you know once you've the information processing is is a complete and exhaustive uh, but but that's deeply unconvincing to someone who just doesn't see how that can capture what we're experiencing now as we talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's the heart of it, I guess. It does sound like um,
1: you know, well, you can just start with it with uh, you know, bananas and put them together in the right way and, and you'll get meta ethics. And, you know, like that's just what it sounds like to me. <laughs> like, like, oh, well, I can see how this happens. And it's like, okay, if you can see how this happens, then what you should be able to do is draw out an intelligible bridge between the quantitative and the qualitative, like a stepwise process where you start with things that can be exhaustively described quantitatively, you know, so purely in the realm of physical science and like fundamental physics, and you start with those raw materials, and you just kind of put them together in such a way where you intelligibly get a stepwise progression until suddenly, or not suddenly, um, it's like something for me from a point of view, you know, and that just no physicalist has ever done that. Most physicalists don't even try. They just say they don't have to. You know, they try to explain why they shouldn't have to do that. But if it's nothing but quantitative stuff, then you should be able to cr- draw an intelligible bridge from that to qualitative experiences.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we could do another two hours on this as well, because <laughs> I think uh, um, I will let you go in a minute. But I think there's a sense that I also wonder if we're applying a different approach to when we think about consciousness scientifically to, to other stuff. So, because in a way, one of the criticisms of the science of consciousness is. The one thing you're not addressing is the subjective experience, right? You look at the neurons firing, you look at the information processing, you're looking at the behavior and you're looking at the perception and blah, blah, blah. But you're not addressing the qualitative stuff. And some people will say, well, you know, we don't have the tools. That's not what science does, but we're working on what we can work on. Other people will say that qualitative stuff doesn't meaningfully exist. Um, and once we've done enough on the quantitative side, you'll see that, right? It will be like, you know, the, the idea of, a life essence or something the idea will just become irrelevant um but there are um there's another related view which is i wonder if we have that problem everywhere with all of our epistemology because when we're doing classical physics about electrons and quarks we're not really getting to the essence of what those things are we're stuttering studying behavior and the things we can quantify about them and you know so in a sense in the same way as we're studying consciousness we're not you know, are we really getting to the essence of it? I'm not sure we get into the essence of any reality. We're just stumbling around doing what we can using evidence. So on, that, on one hand, I'd say maybe that disarms this challenge about consciousness, because it's just like anything else, right? We're just trying to understand it and what can we do but use the quantitative? And I think the panpsychist would say, yeah, and the essence of the electron and the essence of the consciousness. <laughs> (laughs) are are the same thing
1: right so everything you're saying makes perfect sense to me where it's like no look this is just normal science like all of physical science is just dealing with what stuff does and not what stuff is we're not really getting at what things are in themselves when we're doing physical science we're just talking about structure and behavior and the thing is like that is the foundation of modern panpsychism like that first move like that like rossalian monist move um you know so like bertrand russell and arthur eddington like they wrote books that basically. I mean, you basically just summarized what what the point they were trying to make where they're like, this is what physical science does. It's not in the business of telling us what things actually are, but they try to argue there must be like a thing in itself. Like things must have an intrinsic nature that physical science is incapable of actually telling us about because it doesn't matter to physical science, but it's still there. And there are at least two good reasons for thinking that there is an intrinsic nature to physical stuff. One is kind of an abstract argument. And the second is just that consciousness exists. And like, so like, you know, so if you try to do a purely behavioristic approach to human psychology, where you say the science of psychology is ultimately about behavior, you know, human behavior, their the behavior of their brains, verbal behavior, the only thing we can get at scientifically is behavior. Um, but it's it's clearly crazy to go from that to saying there is no consciousness because the only thing we can publicly observe is physical behavior. Like I agree, the only thing we can publicly observe is physical behavior and not consciousness, but we know because we're conscious we know that consciousness exists so physical science is just inadequate physical science can't tell us what things are in themselves and then we have to like do philosophy to figure out what the nature of things in
0: themselves you know what it actually is we
1: know what it is in our case it's consciousness yeah
0: and there's and there's i guess that's another break point which is is our subjective experience that essence or is it just another set of reports no, and, I, behavior, I am, and behavior and yeah <laughs> I mean, I am, in essence, a mental being. Like, I mean, that's
1: why Descartes, you know, he kind of had a point where he was saying, like, I can doubt the existence of my physical being, but I can't doubt the existence of my mind. Yeah, 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 I I think, therefore, like, that's what you are in essence. You are a mental being in essence. So it makes sense to me to say that, like, yeah, the intrinsic nature of this physical stuff is consciousness. That's what it is in essence. Like, that's what it is in itself. And then it kind of appears to us as physical. We can make these even more abstract physical models that describe its behavior, but that's not what the thing actually is. Yeah. And physicalists are like taking this highly abstract thing that physical science gives us and saying, oh, I can put this together and get consciousness. Like, no, you can't. <laughs> like, you can, you never will. It's just like, yeah, you're, you're starting from like a weird philosophical uh, position, but it sounds defensible because what you're saying is like, oh, I think science can figure this out. And that's pretty much always a reasonable thing to say. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. But uh, in
0: this context, I think it's not for like in principle reasons. Yeah, thank you. Well, that was a fascinating exploration. And um, I think we, we can agree, and I think Luke Roloff's would as well, is that whatever sentience is, it matters. So mm-hmm, yeah, absolutely. We, can, we can still share that platform. So. <laughs> and I think you're right. There's, there's, there's still a lot of synergy and overlap between these different ways of thinking. Um, even if we might still have a different sort of sense about where they ultimately lie. But yeah, that's fascinating.
1: No, I, I'm happy to to uh, to be here. And, I, you know, I could talk to you all day. But um, yeah, it, it has been interesting to see the areas of overlap because I just assumed yeah. that we uh, wouldn't have some of the same um, <laughs> opinions, like, for instance, about the Rosalian bonus stuff that you were um, outlining there a moment ago about, like, the role of physical science. And just like, yeah, man, like, you sound like <laughs> Philip Goff
0: right now. Like, like... <laughs> <he's, laughs> no it's fascinating to explore and I think you're right there's some, some commonalities there we'll see I need to keep reading yeah but before I let you go I wanted to finish with another super crazily big question which is how do we make a better future now it's obvious that from your work and my work that we think that podcasting and YouTubing will uh, will make the world a better place well how do you think about um, driving positive change the potential for a better future in the context that we've set in part of this conversation where as we said earlier on you know, we have these really powerful established social norms that are slow to change, that seem to absolutely diametrically clash with a naturalistic and a sentientist sort of ethic. Um, and, and I guess part of the reason I've been doing this work is because intuitively it feels that if we want to make the world better, whether we like it or not, humans have most of the power at the moment, particularly on this planet, and human every human decision is driven by their worldview, whether that's implicit or explicit. And the most important things about worldviews, to my mind, are you know, the things we've been talking about, you know, how do you choose what to believe and what matters ethically and that almost every human cause problem seems to be driven either by a failure of compassion because we've excluded some victim entity from our compassion. We just decided we don't care or some epistemological error. We've just got something really horribly wrong. So this idea of trying to establish a baseline for at least let's take a naturalistic approach and a sentientist approach um, together maybe is a better baseline for us, but, it, it, given all we've talked about, how do you think about the future and how and whether we can make a better one? Um
1: I, I'm actually pretty pessimistic about the future. Um I don't really expect any good thing to happen in my lifetime politically. Um I really just don't think there's much of a much of a good future for um humanity. But there are a couple of bright spots. Like um we talked we touched on one of them, um, which is that I think there actually could be an end to factory farming. Like I think that really could happen. Like before Like before we die, I think we could see factory farming banned and not in a way where there's going to be this huge backlash and reaction, which is what would happen now if you tried to do it. But like, I think that, you know, uh, sort of fake meat products, lab grown meat, whatever, I think it'll advance and get cheaper and cheaper. And um, eventually it will be as good, if not better. It'll also probably be healthier in some ways, Um, but it doesn't have to be. But you could have something that's identical um, in terms of like taste and consistency, and it will be cheaper eventually than the factory farm meat, because it's just more efficient. It just seems like a priori, it seems like it would be cheaper eventually, because you don't have to raise an entire animal and feed it and, um, you know, and then just kill it and then take the part that you want. You can just grow the part that you want. Um, so once you figure out how to do that, it seems like it would be cheaper. And then just, you know, normal, like we live in like a semi-capitalist system. So it's like, you know, the like the market really does determine quite a lot. It's part of why we have better meat products now um is because of you know kind of market forces that push it in that direction so it actually does matter if you abstain from like you know fast food and factory farming and all that stuff like it actually does have an impact um your uh, consumption does matter it's not the most important thing it's not like the only thing that matters but it does have some kind of impact
0: yeah we're we're where most of the money comes from (laughs) Yeah, apart from the subsidies yeah
1: yeah so um I think that we actually could get rid of factory farming because there will be a a competing set of products that are better and cheaper and it will diminish, you know, the need for factory farming and it'll, it'll get to the point where it's not as prevalent as it is now, and it will actually be feasible to ban it. And there will be a small group of psychotics who want to eat animal products anyway, even though there are other alternatives that are like literally indistinguishable. Um, because they're not good people and because they would rather uh they're like i don't want to eat me if it doesn't come from a tortured cow you know it's like there are some people who are like that but i think they actually are a minority um so i i think that you know things will actually be uh, i think there actually is some like hope for um you know banning factory farming eventually but only once there are alternatives that could replace it because the fact is people are not going to part With their uh, little treats, you know, and all the moral, you know, like (laughs) artifice around it, it's all just bullshit. Like they just like their little treats. They just clap their hands together and they just want their fast food and so. And like, look, I get it. Like, it's it's an escape from like a a miserable job or life or so. It can be a bright spot. It can be like a nice um, indulgence, I guess. And it's it's hard to think about like the consequences of, you know, of like where this stuff actually came from.
0: Yeah. And it has cultural and social resonance as well, an identity yeah. resonance for a lot of people. Yeah. It's oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um I think it actually is possible
1: to um to get rid of it, but not until there are alternatives that are just as good and probably cheaper. because um, even if they're just as good, but they're the same price, I think people will just kind of almost absent mindedly pick the the real stuff. Yeah, so it's gotta be cheaper, it's gotta be just as good. But I think that's actually possible, you know. Yeah, so it's like, feasible. We, yeah. yeah. So we could actually uh, see an end of factory farming, which is one of the worst things about our society present day. So one of the worst things about our culture could come to an end. So that's like one of the best things I could mention, I guess. Secondly, I think that um, union activity is a positive sign. Like there's been all this positive um, union uh, developments and activity that just was completely dead for like decades. And um, that's probably one of the only positive political developments that that I've seen like in my adult life. And um, that seems to be going okay. Like I'm kind of cautiously optimistic about that. But um, yeah, I mean, ideally we would have a more democratic economy overall with workers having more like ownership and control over capital goods and the means of production. But I don't really see that happening, even though I think it would be better. But the, the one bright spot there, I think, is that union activity. So I could see how it could all go very wrong. Like I could see how they could be kind of captured by... same forces that they're um opposed to but it might go it might go well i don't know (laughs) it's not it's It's a source of
0: power a little bit at least yeah
1: potential yeah i mean i could see it also going horribly wrong but it it might also um work out so like i'm very you know pro-union and um there seems to be some positive developments in that realm so those are the two nice things I have to say. I don't have much else to say in terms of a better future. Yeah, um yeah. Every other development seems negative, but
2: uh, yeah.
0: what are you going to do? Maybe I'll be pleasantly su- surprised. Maybe. And as a closing question, do you, th- to what degree do you think philosophy like the work you're doing does have ripples that can be positive across the world? Are you, is it something you're, you know, you're doing just cause you find it interesting, or do you think it can actually yeah. make a difference when someone, you know, watches your YouTube video and,
1: I I really don't think that what I'm doing is um, <laughs> important, <laughs> but I think what you're doing is important. I don't think what I'm doing is that important. Um, I'm just talking about like abstract philosophical questions. I'm not sure if they even matter. they just, it's like, um, maybe I'm just like playing Sudoku and like a really like, you know, like high level way or something like maybe that's all I'm doing, but I find it interesting and I can't help but think about things like the hard problem of consciousness. Like, it will bother me even if I just try to stop and just try to quit and just do things that are like practically useful to other people. um, I'm going to end up thinking about like different models of God and um, you know, uh, the hard problem of consciousness. Like it's just unavoidable. Um, And people do seem to value it. Like they do seem to um, like, I think these are really deeply important questions. They just don't seem that practical to me. Like, like a lot of people do care about whether God exists and it's a very important question you know, and it, that does have practical implications, but the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, I don't know if it, if it has a lot of practical impact. It, my time would probably be better spent, like, you know, working for an effective altruist charity, or like if I'm going to podcast and podcasting about like animal rights or,
0: or something that would actually help people. Uh, well, but yeah, I, can't I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't play it down too much because I think that the, the work you do is helping people understand naturalistic epistemology and naturalistically grounded ethics. Um, both are things that I think are deeply important. But I've, the other thing that I think I've been really impressed by with, with your work is your your intellectual honesty and your willingness to follow your thought to where it needs to go, and and the humility and the and the compassion with which you engage with others who virulently disagree with you. And I've heard many of the theorists you talk to say, you know, you're you're one of the only counter apologetics type people I can actually enjoy a conversation with because they know that you're not trying to beat them over the head with something or even in your debates, you're not necessarily just trying to win. You know, you, you genuinely care and are really interested. And I think just setting that example is enormously powerful. And the final thing you're definitely doing a value is you're talking to your audience in the world instead of your wife. So there's a win there for her at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for all that. And yeah,
1: i if nothing else, I've improved the quality of my wife's <laughs> daily life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she still can't escape from me totally she still yeah, gets some yeah. because sometimes people are surprised where they'll be like oh what did your wife think about that I'm like she doesn't listen to my podcast and it's just like she doesn't I'm like she gets three personal podcasts a day like <laughs> she can't handle much more yeah.
0: whether it. she likes it or not and there's, <laughs> and there's no unsubscribe button yeah
1: <laughs> yeah the unsubscribe button is a divorce and yeah, like you she that. never reaches for that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no thank you for saying all that though I really do appreciate it um. Yeah, that's uh, that's very nice to hear. I um I do try to be you know intellectually honest and um yeah I, I mean I, I guess I should just um take take yes for an answer. I'll just say
0: thank you for the compliment. <laughs> thank you yeah, very much. I exactly. do appreciate it. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Inspiration. I've learned a lot as ever too from your work and from the conversation. It's great to talk real time instead of it just being me listening to you.
2: Um, yeah. So
0: <laughs> thank you so much for making the time. What's the best way of people following you and Learning about your work. I'll include the links in the show notes, of course, to Counter Apologetics and Walden Pod. But
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I've got a link tree that's in my Twitter bio. It's in most of the descriptions of the YouTube videos and stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm on YouTube as Emerson Green. Um, like I said, everything is kind of decentralized. But I've got the YouTube channel where most of the podcasts end up, most of them. Um, I've got Counter Apologetics. And I've got Walden Pod. Those are two pods. So if you'd rather listen on like iTunes or Spotify, then that's where you go, um, Counter Apologetics or Walden Pod. And if you prefer YouTube, then yeah, it's just Emerson Green. But uh, yeah, it's uh, religion, consciousness, sometimes biology, sometimes other stuff. Um, You know, I had an episode about socialism a while back um, where I gave my kind of like naive, like uh, Noam Chomsky style defense of it uh, with my friend Micah Edmondson. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's mostly religion and it's mostly consciousness. So, um, but yeah, that's where they can find me. And I'm on Twitter at WaldenPod. pod. Thank you.
0: Well, I will let you get on with the rest of your day. Thanks to your wife for lending you to me too. <laughs> yeah. Take care. Yeah. And please stay in touch.
1: No, oh, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Simpson.
0: Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?